genres that are ignored by mainstream radio. San Diego's only libertarian talk show in a conservative-dominated market. More hard-hitting journalism than even the professionals themselves. Free thought radio. Free speech. Free expression. Yeah. Free snow call! Only on KKSM Oceanside AM 1320. The radio revolution. Podcast airing on LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. As it applies to you and me, our country isn't free. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Free Thought Radio here, live every Monday on KKSM AM 1320, the Radio Revolution. That's in North County, San Diego, and then some. Make sure you're listening to it in, in your car. Uh, or Cox Cable Channel 957 in all of San Diego, where you get Cox Cable. Streaming live at freethoughtmedia.org slash live. Got the Bitcoin donation address on there. And, you know, on the way to the station here, uh, I was uh, around the Levenhine area trying to get to the uh, water district to interview them about fluoride. But I got a little lost on the way and actually ran into this uh, police stop. Uh, the, this police stop, stopped a few kids, and uh, being the uh, filmer that I am, I flipped a U-turn, went back, parked across the street, busted out my smartphone, switched on the U-stream, and started recording away, and the, the kids were really scared. They didn't know what was going on. I'm like, well, I'm just here to make sure your constitutional rights aren't being violated, you know, that you're not getting brutalized. You know, what if Rodney King was never filmed? And, uh, you know, I, I do think that there were some violations on there. They uh, they let the guy, there was a guy in the squad car that they pulled out with handcuffs that I didn't even know was there until they pulled him out. And, uh, you know, they were looking through the stuff. They had everybody's stuff out, so it could have been an illegal search. I don't know. I got there at a wrong time. I'm like, I asked them, do you know if he searched you illegally? And I think they were, you know, they didn't understand what I was saying because uh, they were probably like, a little younger than me. I'm 21. They're probably like 18, 19. And I'm guessing drugs is the thing because they said the, when they let the guy go, they uncuffed his handcuffs. I'm not sure if they even charged him with anything. And if he was the guilty one, uh, then they definitely took pictures of all those people in the car against the white backdrop at the trunk. Uh, that, so that's all on uh, ustream.tv slash channel slash freethought hyphen media no free thought hyphen radio hyphen live so free thought hyphen radio live is the Ustream handle and uh, i'm not sure if they even got charged with a crime because he said you know it's it's technically illegal but i'm gonna give it back to you or something and we're just gonna let you go 
Um, and <laughs> that brings me specifically to my next guest, who is the founder of the organization Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, because you know what they had to say. Handcuffs does not solve the drug problem. It does not make kids better people. It does not, you know, at the end of their jail process, they come out, you know, squeaky clean, you know, that, that handcuffs don't solve anything. And I think that is the truth. Joining me now is Peter Christ. He is a retired police captain and is now the vice chair of the group Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Peter, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on and sure you're on it with me, Alex. No problem. Uh, so tell us a bit about your background in law enforcement and what did your experiences tell you about the nature of the war on drugs? Well, you, you, you're, you're, you're going to not be happy when I tell you the next thing I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I am the definition of the word hypocrite. Uh, I got into police work for the 20-year retirement. Uh, that's the only reason I became a cop. It wasn't because I wanted to be a cop. It's because I wanted to be retired before I was 45 years old. And I came to my decision about this drug policy before I became a cop. That's why I use the word hypocrite, <laughs> because I had looked into the uh, and really studied because my parents were 42 years old when I was born in 46. They were both born in 1904. So they were young people, young adults living through alcohol prohibition. And we used to talk a lot about what that period was like and why it didn't work. And I finally came by the time I was about 20, 21 years old, I came to the conclusion that even though my mother was a wonderful, brilliant lady, and my father likewise, uh, my mother was wrong about the prohibition thing. Uh, she, being a good Baptist lady, would say it didn't work because the people didn't support it. My father would say it didn't work because it was a stupid idea when they thought of it. <laughs> okay, And it turned out that after I looked into things and read up on it and stuff, my father appeared to be right. Uh, when you prohibit activities between consenting adults, things that adults want to do together. But some people don't like it because they think it's immoral or they think it's this or they think it's that. So they decide to use the criminal justice system to deal with it. What happens when a society does that is they immediately create crime in their society because they take this activity, for instance, to use drugs for an example, I want to sell drugs you want to buy my drugs. We're both happy. There's no crime here, mm -hmm. but it's illegal because the rest of the people say it's illegal. So now we have more crime in society. And if there is an economic aspect to that activity, you create violence. Mm -hmm. We did not end alcohol prohibition in 1933 because some new scientific study came out and told us, oh my goodness, we were wrong about alcohol. It's really wonderful stuff. You should give it to your kids. That isn't the reason we legalized it. We legalized it because it only took us 13 years to learn the lesson that time, and that is alcohol did not create people like Al Capone. Prohibition of alcohol is what created people like Al Capone. And the gangster violence that we see all throughout this country and in Mexico and throughout the world associated with drug-related violence is not drug-related violence, it is drug-business-related violence. And that's what people are shooting each other over. They're not shooting each other because they're high, they're shooting each other because they're fighting over who's gonna run the marketplace. And exactly. we have given them that marketplace by using prohibition. So I went into police work, I had a little sit down with myself in front of the mirror and I said, you know, everything you know about this stuff is theory, 
Now you're going to be going on to the job to do it. It's going to be your profession. So put all your old thinking on the back burner and give it a fair shot. By the time I was on the job, about four or five years, I realized that I was right when I walked in the door. Drug enforcement was the only aspect of our job that no matter how vigorously we did it, it didn't make any difference. We would have a series of burglaries in our community. One of our officers would arrest a burglar. And for a while, not forever, but for a while, there wouldn't be any burglaries. And we would say, we did that. We took that bad person out of the community. We made our community safer. No matter how many drug arrests we made, the drugs still were there. And we never affected the marketplace. We made an arrest one day. We had a low-income housing project in the town. A woman called in and said, there's a guy selling drugs out in front of my apartment right now on a street corner. And we happened to have an unmarked detective car across the street in the park having caught him. They zipped across the street. They grabbed the guy. And they're taking the mile-and-a-half trip back to the police station with the guy in custody. The woman calls back and says, what are you going to do something about the guy selling drugs in front of my apartment? And our dispatcher very smugly said to her, ma'am, I suggest you look out the window. We've arrested that guy. And she said, I don't know who you arrested, but I am looking out my window. There's a guy selling drugs. That job was filled before we got the arrest back to the station. <laughs> you cannot win this type of a battle. Drug use in our society is fundamentally an education and a healthcare problem. In fact, even the drug czar says that. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever asks him when he says that, tell me, Mr. Gilikowski, what other health care and education problem should we spend most of our time, money and effort on the criminal justice system to deal with it with? Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything else. It's a health care and education problem. We said cops out to take care of. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, t- obviously you, you knew about it before you went in. Uh, talk about uh, once you you were retired, how you got involved with law enforcement against prohibition, especially as the vice chair. Okay, well, uh, it's my idea. Awesome. <laughs> I, I, I retired in 1989, <clears throat> and I knew I was going to get involved in drug policy reform because that was my passion, it was my issue. I saw the damage it was doing not only to society but to my old profession. I wanted to get my old profession out of that and let us go back to being what we are, which is peace officers protecting people from other people doing them harm. So I got into this. I went down to the the only organization I knew about at the time back in 1989 was normal. So I called down to Washington to their office and I said, you got anything coming up? And they said, we got a conference coming up in October. Now, marijuana was never my issue. I'm not about marijuana. I'm not a marijuana legalizer. I'm a drug legalizer. I want to end the prohibition of all drugs, regulate and control the marketplace. Obviously, that includes marijuana because that's one of the drugs, but it's not my sole issue. So I went to this conference because I figured I'd meet some people that are involved in a movement here and maybe get involved a little bit. And I met people that were at that conference that had just been to a conference the week before. And they were at a conference for an organization at that time that was called DPF, Drug Policy Foundation. We now know it as DPA, Drug Policy Alliance. And those people were talking about what I was talking about. They were talking about all drugs, regulate and control the marketplace. The problem is the prohibition. It has nothing to do with whether the drugs are good or bad or not. They should be regulated and controlled. So the next year I went to, the, to that conference. 
uh, to the DPF conference, and I've gone to everyone since then. Uh, I did some letters to the editor. I had moved from the Buffalo area to the Syracuse area because Paula, my lovely wife, had got a job in Syracuse about a year before I retired. So I relocated down here, started writing letters to the editor or, you know, calling an end talk show. I was just trying to get my voice out there. And some people had heard about me, and they were starting a group in Syracuse called Reconsider. And it was re called Reconsider Form on Drug Policy. And they got a hold of me, and they said, you want to be part of it? And I said, yeah, and I became their primary spokesperson. Okay, I went out and did the presentations and stuff like that for them. But all during the 90s, I would talk about this idea that I had for a law enforcement group. And the idea was kind of based on Vietnam veterans against the war. And what I mean by that is this. When the Vietnam veterans against the war spoke against the war, whether you agreed with their conclusion on the war or not, nobody ever looked at them and said, you don't understand the problem. <laughs> you know, because they were veterans. They fought, but they understand the problem. And I figured that a group of law enforcement people speaking about drug policy would have the same effect. Nobody is going to look at me. They may not agree with my conclusion, but they're not going to tell me I, after spending 20 years dragging a badge and gumming around, I kind of got an idea what the problem is. Okay. So, and I would have people say to me, gee, it's a great idea. You ought to do it. We need a group like that. We, and then I would say, I'll be glad to work with anybody you find who wants to run it. I do not want to run it. <laughs> okay. But you find somebody that wants to do the work to get the organ, you know, all that stuff. The, under, the background stuff that has to be done. Mm -hmm. In 1999, I was at a conference, and I was there was still when Reconsider was going on, and there was a guy at that conference by the name of Jack Cole. And Jack Cole spent, he retired as lieutenant from New Jersey State Police, spent 26 years there, 16 of those years working deep undercover narcotics work. I mean, he really worked in the trenches of the narcotics fortune. And he had retired, and he had come to the revelation that this was wrong and he came to the conference and he came on board with reconsider and became our other spokesperson. So they started booking me and Jack at places. In late 2001, Jack calls me up on the phone one day and says, did you hear about that offer from MPP? I'm sure you know who that group is, mm -hmm. Marijuana Policy Project, okay. And I said, yeah, you're talking about the 50,000? He says, yeah. And what MPP had done is throwing 50,000 out on the table for anybody that wanted to start a law enforcement group. So Jack said to me, do you want to do it? We're on the phone. And I said to Jack, uh, do you want to run it? And Jack paused for a few seconds and says, yeah, I'll run it. I said to him, do you want to run it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll run it. I said to him, do you want to run it? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I already said twice, I'll run it. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to remind you six months from now when you're complaining about how much work it is that I gave you three chances to say no. <laughs> but if you want to run it, I'll be glad to work with you and you know, we can see what we can do. So we got a, few, a hold of a few other people, a Canadian guy who was still on the job named John Gator. He's still on the force up in Niagara Falls uh, Parks Police. Uh, Dan Salerno and a guy you may have heard of, uh, Howard Wooldridge. Um, haven't heard and of him. Russia. Okay, well, the, the five of us were the original five that put in the proposal to MPP. We got the 50 grand, and that's how Leap got started. So, the way I like to tell the story is, and I always say this this way tell me if I'm not sounding arrogant enough. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 Peter Christ had the idea for Leap. <laughs> and 
hadn't have been for Jack Cole, it would still be an idea because he's the one that did the hard work of turning that idea into a reality. And since then, we have grown in leaps and bounds. We have about 50,000 total membership, about 3,000 of those are people from law enforcement. And, I, and I'll tell you something I was wrong about when I, formed, when I first started talking about LEAP. I wanted LEAP to be just cops. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, the other four guys that were the founders with me talked me out of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we opened, it's still just law enforcement, but we have judges, prosecutors, all aspects of law enforcement. And it makes us a much deeper and broader organization than we would have been before. Um, and, it, and you meet some strange people when you get involved in this stuff from all over the place. In fact, this last selection, I had the opportunity to vote for two people, for president and vice president, who both knew me. Not just that I knew them, but they know me. And that's Gary Johnson and uh, Jim Gray. Awesome. Um, me too. <laughs> Yep, yep. And it's uh, Gary Johnson has been on our board of advisors since the beginning, back in 2002. And Jim Gray has been a speaker with us for about five years and one of our you know top-notch speakers that we have. And it was kind of a neat thing to be able to go in and flip that switch and realize that yeah. I was walking through an airport and those guys saw me. They say, hey, Pete, how you doing? It's kind of <laughs> never happened before. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's a matter of getting the message out. And <clears throat> we are not... A marijuana group or a marijuana mar medical marijuana group we have nothing we have nothing at least good to say about any of the drugs <laughs> they're all terrible don't do any of them don't use any of these drugs they're horrendous but the problem isn't helped by prohibition it is fact made worse by a policy of prohibition and what we have to do is shut down the illegal marketplace we have proven over the last 60 years that we cannot do it by arresting people because we've arrested millions, all right? And that hasn't shut down the marketplace. So the other way to shut down the marketplace is to take it away from them and give it to licensed, regulated market control and then deal with our drug problem, as I said, as a healthcare and educational problem. That's LEAP. Exactly. And it might create a few jobs, too. Um, for those <laughs> just joining, I'm speaking with Peter Christ. He's the founder and vice chair of law enforcement against prohibition, please visit leap.cc or cops say legalized drugs.com. Um, so, so we touched up on a few, like the main points about prohibition. Um, so, so let's, let's get into a few of like the, the counter arguments. I'll play devil, devil, devil's advocate. Um, since I obviously agree with everything you've said, but, um, right. some people think legalization will create a free for all of drug use that uh, people are just going to go out tomorrow and try all the drugs. Um, does the war on drugs actually stop the supply from getting into people's hands? Well, there's two ways I'd like to answer that. Uh, we legalized alcohol in 1933, and you remember what happened. Everybody became an alcoholic. We lost the Second World War. We're all now speaking German. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that isn't what happened. You know, people rationally use this drug the proper way. Um, I don't believe that there is anybody in America who is not using any of these drugs because they can't get them. It isn't a lack of availability. Anybody who is not smoking crack cocaine today is not smoking crack cocaine today because they choose not to smoke crack cocaine, not because they can't get any crack cocaine. All right. So at least let's be honest about it. And part of what you said in the question uh, 
promotes to me an, a, another way that this question is phrased to me sometimes. And people say to me, we can't legalize these drugs. What kind of a message will that send to the children? It's condoning. It's saying that they're okay. And I use myself as a personal example. I am 66 years old. I've been a cigarette smoker since I've been about 17. Okay. I, for the last 20 years, I don't buy. But if I'm around people that smoke, I smoke. So if I don't see anybody that smokes for three months, I don't smoke for three months. And if I'm someplace out there and there's somebody around with a cigarette, I bum one off them. But I remember back years ago when I, as a cigarette smoker, was utterly and completely condoned in this society. I remember no matter what building I walked into, all I ever asked for was an ashtray. I never asked, could I smoke? <laughs> uh, I never checked. I never checked at a hotel for a smoking room because all the rooms were smoking rooms. I could get on an airplane in New York City and smoke all the way out to L.A. and all the way back in the smoking section that was divided by the rest of the plane sometimes by a curtain and usually just by air, all right? Mm -hmm. We as smokers were condoned. You ask any cigarette smoker today in America if they feel condoned, and I think the answer you'll get is condoned. I feel barely tolerated by the rest of society. <laughs> and I bring that up because tobacco is totally and completely legal in America, but it is not condoned. And another thing that, that comes up is one of the questions I get often is, do you think that there will be an increase, and you ask it in yours, increase in drug use if we legalize drugs? And my answer is absolutely skyrocket through the roof. You know, I know everybody out there is just waiting for their first hit off the crick. Well, I'm obviously being, as my wife would say, I'm being thesis or facetious. Either one, it's the same way. Um, but I use this as an example. I have noticed over the last few years that there all of a sudden seems to be gay people everywhere in America. Now, it wasn't like this 10, 15 years ago. 10, 15 years ago, there weren't any gay people. I could watch television for a whole week and never see a gay person. Now they're everywhere. And I ask myself the question that needs to be asked. If there are, in fact, more gay people now than there was before, why are all these straight people turning gay? But we know better, don't we? There isn't one more gay person in America today than there was 10 years ago. The only difference is the rest of us stop being jerks about it. And now these people feel comfortable in saying who they are. And once we legalize drugs, we're going to have the appearance of an increase in use because we don't know how many illegal drug users there are in America. Mm -hmm. And they will all become visible. And it'll make it look like everybody's doing it now. I tell people when I speak at Rotary Clubs, I ask them to raise their hand if they know an illegal drug user. I'm going to surprise you with something. Usually about a third of the hands go up. <laughs> These are Rotarians. These are business people. You know, they, and so the people that don't put their hands up, I tell them, all you people that didn't put your hands up, you're all lying. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that they are intentionally lying. <clears throat> but I guarantee you that if drugs become legal tomorrow <clears throat> and every illegal drug user becomes visible to everybody else tomorrow, everybody in America is going to know an illegal drug user. They may not know they know one now, 
but they're going to find out after it becomes legal. So we'll have that appearance of an increase in use, but then we can use the things that work. We've gotten 50% of the adult cigarette smokers in America to give up tobacco in the last 10 years. That's a wonderful success story. We didn't burn one tobacco field. We didn't arrest one tobacco seller. We just educated people and use a little something we learned from the Amish called shunning. <laughs> you got to go outside. In fact, I was on a tour down in uh, Ohio and I got invited to a dinner party at a house. And when I got there, everybody was smoking weed. Okay. And I don't smoke weed. Well, whether Peter does or not, Leap doesn't smoke weed. And I was on the road for Leap. So but I said, no, no, thank you. They offered. I said, no, no, thank you. I said, but um, anybody got a cigarette? And a couple of people were cigarette smokers. One of them handed me a cigarette. And I went to light the cigarette. And they said, oh, you'll have to go outside. <laughs> and I told them, I said, you know what the joy of being old is? You live through different things. For instance, I'm 66. I remember when the cigarette smokers used to sit in the house and smoke and the potheads used to go for a walk. Now the potheads sit in the house and smoke and the cigarette smokers got to go for a walk. <laughs> so things change from time to time. But that, again, another example of how we regulate and deal with tobacco use and, and alcohol use. You know. Exactly. And, and it goes to the seen and the unseen. You could see all the, the poor users of drugs that uh, let it really affect their behavior, but you can't see the people that use them. <clears throat> responsibly and don't uh, affect people negatively don't be get get behind the wheel of a car uh, you know you go down the list you know don't harm anybody else well and that and that's what it comes down to I like to use two American citizens as an example um, the one I like to use is the alcoholic and by alcoholic I don't mean in recovery I mean a drinking everyday alcoholic but this alcoholic that I'm referring to they drink every day, but they never drink and drive, and they never hurt other people or other people's property. And then I look at people, I say, what do we do to them? And the answer is nothing. We leave them alone. And then I say, what do we do for them? And most people very quickly say nothing, and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's think about it for a second. First off, we guarantee them a purity of product, don't we? Yeah, oh, yeah. When you're buying the alcohol, you know what's in there. You don't want you don't find out later after you're dead that there was rat poison mixed in with the Daniels, you know. Secondly, we provide them with a safe place to purchase and use the product in. Licensed establishments, liquor stores, taverns, those kind of places. And thirdly, we provide them with treatment on demand. Any alcoholic can walk into an AA meeting tomorrow and start recovery. It's right there for them. Come on in. Now let's talk about the other American citizen I want to talk about, and that's the heroin addict. And let's compare them equally. This heroin addict uses every day, just like the alcoholic, but never uses and drives and never hurts other people or other people's property. What do we do to them? Oh, we give, they have a hot shot eventually one day. Uh, that could be, or we arrest them. And in every state, it's a felony. So we hang a felony conviction on their record. We say at leap that you could recover from your addiction. You never recover from your conviction. That goes with you to every job interview you go to for the rest of your life. And what about purity of product? You just mentioned it. Who knows what you're getting out there on the street? What about a safe place to purchase and use the product in? Oh. For anybody that's listening, if you're planning on taking the family out for dinner tonight, I would suggest that a crack house is not the place you want to go. A tavern you might want to go to, but a crack house, no. And then what about treatment? Well, if you're a heroin addict, you got to admit to two things. One, 
I'm an addict, and two, I'm a criminal. And that pushes people away from the treatment and the assistance that they need to possibly change their behavior. And why do we say we're doing this? We claim that we're just trying to help these people. Well, if I'm the heroin addict, I'm going to look us straight in the eye and say, if you want to help me, why don't you help me like you're helping the alcoholic? If I'm not hurting other people or other people's property, leave me alone. Guarantee me a purity of product. Give me a safe place to purchase and use it. Allow me to access treatment on demand. And then if you want to call me scum on top of it, that's fine. But I think you'll find out that all I am is a human being who has a problem. Exactly. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then the news. And then we'll be back with more Peter Christ of law enforcement against prohibition. You're listening to Free Thought Radio here on KKSM as well as LRN.FM. Be right back. You're listening to KKSM 1320 AM. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Cox Cable, channel 957. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. Student run and independent. PalmarCollegeRadio.com. We're from the government, and we're going to solve all your problems. Do you know what your problem is? Sometimes people make the wrong choices, but we're going to help them make the right choices. With guns. Hey, you're not running your business right. You're not paying people enough money. You're not hiring the right people. You keep firing the wrong people. Well, do it different. Do it different now! They got two boys kissing on the TV. We can't have that. We can't have boys kissing boys and girls kissing girls. Stop it! Stop it now! You're not doing religion right. You're worshiping all wrong and believing all wrong and wearing the wrong symbols. Well, fix it. Fix it now, David. Are you interested in peaceful solutions to LGBT issues? Listen to Flaming Freedom on the Liberty Radio Network every Tuesday and Saturday night from 10 p.m. to midnight. Or download any show for free from flamingfreedom.com. Punk and Ska is not dead. I'm the Reverend Nate, and I invite you to the Punk and Ska Revival every Friday from 6 to 9. I'll be bringing you the good word with your best in underground, obscure, and your favorite Punk and Ska band. Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. So grab your boots, fix up your mohawk, iron on your patches, and get ready to mosh, skank, and sage-eye at the Punk and Ska Revival with Reverend Nate every Friday night from 6 to 9. Sir, with all due respect, would you consider yourself a skipper or a rude boy? Only on KKSM, the radio revolution. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN. FM. From coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, from Indian burial grounds to the Overlook Hotel, from the depths of Mount Doom to the hilltops of Valhalla, from trailer park country to Texas Chainsaw Territory, broadcasting live from the campus of Palomar College, this is KKSM. 500 watts never sounded so good. Yes, they do sound good. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. Freethoughtmedia.org, KKSM, the Radio Revolution, and LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. Peter Chris with Law Enforcement will be back in a few minutes, but right now it is time for the news. So breaking, uh, Israel strikes Syria first, and Syria considers that 
a declaration of war. The second strike by Israel aircrafts in two days occurred over the weekend as Israeli jets targeted an alleged weapons stockpile allegedly heading to Hezbollah. However, Syrian and Lebanese uh, officials state that there were no re weapons in that target. More than likely, this was to aid the Syrian rebels, who are made up of jihadists and other extremists that are funded and armed by the United States government. Uh, there are no in instances of a secular uh, organization in any of the towns or areas where the Free Syrian Army have taken over. If supposed Islamic extremism is the gravest threat to Israel, why are they siding with the Free Syrian Army? Israel also announced that a United States uh, brokered alliance between Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Jordan is to be made. And Saudi Arabia is a U.S.-backed uh, religious dictatorship that squashes its own people and certainly has goals of taking over that region and stopping, stomping on the other countries in the Middle East. Syria's government is not good either, not by a long shot, with people being executed by the Syrian government, but the rebellion is no better. They have been executing civilians taking over towns and instituting strict religious laws. The, U the UN has been reporting that the Free Syrian Army has been using chemical weapons, specifically nerve gas, not the Syrian government. In the 1980s, Donald Rumsfeld gave anthrax to Saddam Hussein. So given the foreign aid from the U.S. government to the Syrian rebels, who knows where those chemical weapons may have come from. New WikiLeaks cables show that the U.S., government has secretly backed the Syrian opposition groups. The funding and uh, backing started under President Bush and has continued under President Obama. So the U.S. government is literally behind the Syrian rebellion and the, and the artificial movement is seeking to do the U.S.'s bidding to topple Assad. Regime change. Was Syria ever a threat to the, U to the U.S.? Assad is certainly a dictator in his own land, but somehow the U.S. government uh, are not brutal dictators when they do the same thing to other countries, such as regime change and supporting equally violent and dangerous rebellions. The Israeli strike caused the entire city of Damascus to shake, and reports claim Israel used depleted uranium shells in the strike, which added to the explosive nature of the strike. Israel may have gotten the blessing of the U.S. government and the Syrian rebellion to initiate the attack. Given that Israel striked first, Syria has called the uh, attack a declaration of war by Israel and is preparing for retaliation, showing the self-destructive nature of Israel's foreign policy, which they say is to protect them from supposed anti-Semitic actors in the region, but in reality are just attempts at big land grabs to increase uh, their allies, including Britain and the U.S.'s grip over the region, and certainly uh, on a smaller scale to... Um, uh, achieve some of the goals of the Likud party who uh, are represent a minority view and uh, represent a bit of a racist or supremacist type of viewpoint. Uh, if they were really concerned about protecting themselves, why would they want to bring war on themselves or stand with Islamic despots like Saudi Arabia or the Al-Qaeda-ridden Free Syrian Army? Every country and every person on this planet has the right to defend themselves, no question, so do, including Israel, but so does Syria, because Israel's action in this instance are not defensive uh, in this case and many other cases.
It is offensive based on perceived threats, not actuals. You know, the George Bush doctrine of preemptive war. That's a totally BS claim. Preemptive, there's no such thing as preemptive war. War is war. You know, whoever strikes first is going to expect some retaliation. Of course, you know, the, the need to defend themselves, they are now certainly going to experience uh, some imminent threats from Syria, to, from the country, that, uh, from the war that they initiated. The strike is said to have killed 42 Syrian soldiers with 100 missing. Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel states that the U.S. is considering arming the Syrian rebels. That's kind of like a bold-faced lie, though, because we have been supporting them for quite some time, and probably, you know, they wouldn't even have existed if it weren't for us. President Obama will not comment on the airstrike as he was in South America for a meeting of world leaders. In state news, San Diego gets its first Bitcoin ATM. Bitcoin ATM CEO Evan Rose of San Diego said, basically allowing people to buy Bitcoins with cash, cash Bitcoins out right on the spot. Allowing citizens of San Diego to dump the dollar and hedge against inflation. Um, and even with the volatility of Bitcoin, it is still more valuable and more stable and not associated with wars like the U.S. dollar is. Uh, additionally, in state news, the raided medical cannabis dispensary operators of one-on-one -on -one collective speak out against the recent DEA raid. Um, uh, I have the audio from the press conference. First up is dispensary operator Kenneth Cole, former Olympian uh, basketball player for the Australian team in 1964, now has bone cancer and uh, diabetes, and uh, after that, a few of his lawyers speak as well. Take a listen. All of our patients, they've got your medical records. What are they going to do with those? What right has the federal government got to start interfering in our medical situation? How can they do that? Are they going to go to the patient that purchases $10 worth to try and survive a day or two? Is that what they're going to do? Go after that individual patient? Are they going to go to the doctor and start challenging whether the doctor had any right to recommend? I don't know what they're going to do. But I know that what they're going to do is as un-American as anything I've ever heard of. If anyone at the city attorney's office or the U.S. attorney's office or the DEA tells you that San Diego is safer since this crackdown started in October 2011, you've got to question that because what they've done is they've closed down places that they knew were located, knew how they were operating, that they could find and they could watch and they could see. And if they're not compliant like we are, then shut them down and arrest those people. But what they've done is they forced everyone, all these seriously ill patients and everyone else underground. Now people are going into alleys and back onto the streets and cartels are back in San Diego. So if they're gonna tell you that it's safer here, that is not the truth. They've made San Diego more dangerous by the actions they've taken over the last 18 years. Ken and one-on-one -on -one are the last battle front on this failed war on medical marijuana, maybe marijuana. Uh, to put it into last week's events into perspective, uh, on April 20th, 50,000 people uh, broke federal law together in Denver, Colorado. These weren't sick and dying people like Ken Cole. These were people over 21 smoking marijuana in violation of federal law uh, in a state that now allows uh, individuals to smoke it even for, without a medical uh, card. And then three days later, uh, they have the audacity to come in here and shut down a, a dispensary that's been operating open and notoriously for the last two and a half years and providing seriously ill San Diegans 
with uh, medicine that they need to use, uh, which is given to them by a doctor, or a recommendation by a doctor. So my role moving forward is going to be to ask some of the questions that the mayor has also asked. Why California? We have two states that have legalized marijuana for recreational states. We have 17 other states that have medical marijuana laws. As I told you, 50,000 people broke federal law three days before they came in here and, uh, and uh, uh, put everyone in handcuffs and knocked the surveillance videos out. Um, next question, why San Diego? Um, there are licensed dispensaries operating throughout the state of California. Uh, we were getting very close to getting this all figured out until the DEA came in here and, and shut it all down. And I will have Ken Cole on the show next week, so be sure to tune in. Uh, traffic in the North County, San Diego, is all good and dandy. There are no problems in the area where you can pick up AM 1320. The weather outside here in San Marcos, where KKSM wonderfully broadcasts out of, is... 64 degrees, broadcasting live from KKSM for KKSM and LRN.FM. That has been your news. All right. Now to get back to my interview with Peter Christ of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Again, for those just joining, I'm speaking with Peter Christ of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. The site is www.leap.cc or copssaylegalizeddrugs.com. Um, so yeah. let's, let's talk a bit about uh, civil liberties. Uh, what in our Bill of Rights uh, are stripped away because in the eyes of the drug warriors, the ends justify the means? Well, we have we have quite a few. Obviously, the Fifth Amendment, the, the right to uh, you know the Fourth Amendment, right to privacy is stripped away. But I'll give you even a bigger one that that nobody talks about. It's not the Bill of Rights. Uh, and and I always like to preface this by saying this: we live under a very unique form of government. When they first founded this nation, what they decided was they were going to do something a little different. The government wasn't going to have power. The only power the government was going to have was the power that we, as the citizens, gave it. It didn't have, like the kings did, power from God. Mm. It had just the power that we granted it. And it's interesting to me, and it's really, when you look at it from this point of view, when those founders sat down and wrote the first paperwork, they wrote that Bill of Rights, the first 10 rules that they made were all rules against what the government could do. Oh, it yeah. was. It wasn't the government can arrest you if you do this. The government; Those weren't the first laws. All the rules were against the government, saying you can't do this, you can't do that. They realized when they wrote that document that there was obviously going to be disputes between the states over different things. So they wrote into the Constitution a section called the Commerce Clause. And the Commerce Clause granted to the federal government the power to regulate, here's the word, regulate interstate commerce. So now when there's any dispute between the states, the dispute goes to the federal government, they regulate interstate commerce. When the federal government, when the courts of the 1800s and early 20th century read the word regulate, they didn't see prohibit in that word anywhere. They said regulate isn't, you can't prohibit, is total deregulation. Make regular. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So 
when they wanted to prohibit the sale of alcohol in America, in order to give the government the power to do that, we had to first write an amendment to the Constitution to grant that power to prohibit the interstate commerce of alcohol to the government. And once we gave the government that power, then we passed the Volstead Act, which was the enforcement law of it, and we had 13 years of prohibition. We came out of prohibition, and the courts now saw a different interpretation of that word, regulate. Oh, yeah. And they allowed it for the prohibition of drugs and the transport and interstate movement of drugs. And I, one of my contention is we, the law of the land in America for over a century was separate but equal, segregation, okay? When the attorneys argued against that in the 1920s in the Supreme Court, they lost. When they argued against it in the 30s, they lost. When they argued against it in the 40s, they lost. And then all of a sudden in 1954, when a case called Brown versus Board of Education came up, they won. And segregation started, didn't go away overnight, but it started to disappear in America, okay? And we started to change our behavior and stuff like that. If attorneys start arguing the Commerce Clause, they're going to lose initially. But I think, particularly with this court, they might win it. And they might find out that this federal prohibition of drugs is, in fact, unconstitutional. Exactly. Because they have no right to prohibit the interstate commerce of anything. They can regulate it. And I'll give you a, a big thing in case people are having a problem with the word regulate and prohibit. Um, if a whole bunch of your listeners out there get together and they pool all their money together and they buy a huge tract of land, and they build a city. Offices, streets, sidewalks, they get the city all built, and they realize before they open it up to the public, they're going to have to regulate traffic in that city, or it's going to be a zoo, okay? So they hire me, an old traffic cop, and they say, will you set up a regulatory program for us? And I look at it, and I say, yeah, for $150,000, I'll put together a program for you. So they contract with me. I leave. I come back a month later. I hand them an envelope. They hand me my check. I proceed to walk away. They open up the envelope. And in the envelope is one slip of paper. And on the slip of paper, there is one line. And the line says, there'll be no vehicles allowed inside the city limits. Now, are you going to consider this an effective form of regulation? No. <laughs> or, or are you going to say, any idiot could have done that. I want it regulated. Prohibition is deregulation. When you prohibit something, we call we call these policies in America, the government calls them drug control policies. In reality, they are total drug decontrol policies. When it comes to morphine, the Food and Drug Administration maintains the purity of morphine. They run it through a prescription drug program. We make sure that it's manufactured properly. Everything is properly. It's sold at the proper. When it comes to heroin, who sets the purity? The mob. Mm -hmm. Who sets the age limits? The mob. Who sets the distribution points? The mob. Who spends the profits? The mob. It's total deregulation when you institute a prohibition. And I, I want to give you a quick example of where we've done this before in the past. And there's many things we've done it with. But the one I like to bring out to people, there used to be a huge enterprise in America that was run by the mob, ran for decades. And it was called the numbers racket. And they employed children. They used to call them runners. They would go around 12, 13-year-old kids just like drug dealers today, and they would collect nickels, dimes, and quarters for people that would pick numbers, and then there would be a drawing, and somebody would win the money from the mob, and the mob made the money out of it. And we tried to stamp it out by arresting people and everything. Couldn't touch it. Then one morning, we woke up, and it was gone. They shut the whole thing down all by themselves. Amazing. Now, ironically, that was the day we started a thing called 
the lottery. Because mm -hmm. what we did was we legalized the numbers racket. Now, that didn't solve our gambling problem. There are still people that are dumb enough to blow their whole paycheck on the lottery ticket instead of feeding their family, whatever. That problem still exists. But we don't have a mob running the lottery or the numbers racket anymore. We don't have 13, 14-year-old kids running numbers for the mob anymore. All that stuff is gone. And that's what we have to do with the drugs. We have to get it out of the hands of the gangsters and thugs. Obviously, arresting them isn't doing it. We have built the largest prison system on the planet Earth. We incarcerate numerically. I don't mean percentage. Numerically, we incarcerate more people in America than any other country in the United States. Roughly a third of those cells are non-violent drug offenders. A third of those cells. That's approximately a million people because we're approaching three million now for total arrest population. And I also want to say that we have one of the most efficient prison systems on this planet. You almost never hear of anybody escaping from one of our prisons. We put you in there, you stay. And do you want to take a guess on how many drug-free prisons we have? Exactly, zero, 100% correct. And I always like to mention that because the people in there have given up, not given up, have had taken away from them all their liberties, okay? They're prisoners. They have no liberties at all in that prison system. And yet we can't keep drugs out of there either. And we have politicians who say, vote for me, I'll give you a drug. Just once, I wanna stop. I, I'll never do it, but it just, I'd love to. When I drive by a high school somewhere and I see that sign that says drug-free school, I want to stop in there and get a hold of the principal and ask that principal if they would set up a training program for every prison warden in America. Because according to that sign, they've accomplished something in that school that not one prison in America has been able to. Now, we all know those signs are a joke. Yeah. Okay, and we all know that every school in America has got drugs in it and everything else. But yet we live with the myth. It's kind of like it's the la, 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 la <laughs> method of trying to learn things. You know, stick your fingers in your ear, close your eyes and scream as loud as you can and see what you can learn. <laughs> exactly. And, and going back to the interstate commerce clause, it was literally given the government the ability to regulate what you can or can't do in your own backyard, even if it never leaves the state. Um, and it's mostly been driven by huge farming corporations that don't want you taking away business from them by growing your own. And that, of course, you know, allow them to expand the, the original intent of the Commerce Clause. And then, of course, drug prohibition gets lumped into that. Um, I talk a lot about a lot about foreign policy on this show. Um, how does the war on drugs influence our foreign policy in regards to previous uh, foreign interventions in Latin America and how the the CIA and the Justice Department have roles in funneling guns into selected cartels to pit them against other cartels. Well, it's interesting. If you, um, I, I live on the Canadian border, have all my life. <clears throat> if you go over to Canada, use American money just like you use Canadian money. You know, we we know your exchange rates and everything is just the same. You go way up north in Canada. They want to see Canadian money. <laughs> you know, they're not really go to the bank, cash it in, whatever. They don't want to be working with the exchange rate and stuff like that. If you work in any environment, you have to use the currency of that environment or you can't get along. The currency for the underground that the CIA works in is money, drugs and guns. That's the currency. 
Now, I'm not saying that there's some plot by the CIA to transport drugs, and I'm not I'm not a, a conspiracy theorist. I I have trouble conspiring with three of my friends all show up at the same restaurant at the same time for dinner. So <laughs> big conspiracies are kind of lost on me. But you can't deal in that marketplace without that currency. Mm-hmm. And you have to then be involved in that trade in order to do it. So that's that's part of it. Also, look look at the reason we went we invaded Panama was supposedly the drug problem. That was the excuse for the behavior on our part, you know, to, to take Doriega out, stuff like that. So it, it has been a major part of it. Right now, we have our military troops protecting the opium fields in Afghanistan from the Taliban who wants to burn them down because it's the only cash crop that the people over there have. So our generals have told them to protect the opium. Now, now isn't it not lost on anybody yeah. what we're talking about here? And it's it's this is always part of it. And when you have a failed policy, you will do bizarrely strange things to make it appear like it isn't really failing. And that's what we're doing with this drug policy. We get every year, you know what the sign of, if if I was the elective sheriff in the community you live in, and you elected me me five years ago when I was now running for re-election, and in order to prove that you should re-elect me, here was my campaign. Five years ago when I took the job as sheriff, we only had four bank robberies in this county, and we only had three rapes. Over the last five years, we have increased that to 45 bank robberies and 102 rapes under my control. Now, reelect me. That's what we do with the drug thing. Every year we say we seize more drugs this year than we did the year before. That is not a sign of success. That is a sign of failure. But we paint it like it's supposed to be. That's a sign that it's successful in some way. And even though we're seizing more drugs than we have ever seized before every year, the estimate that the DEA has on how much we are stopping from coming into this country is still 10 (laughs) percent. So even though the numbers, the weight's more, it's still only 10 percent of what's coming in. And I know legitimate businesses can that can work off of a 10% loss ratio and still make a good income. And these people aren't paying taxes. They aren't paying anything else. It's just cash flowing into them. It, it's, if there was one thing rational about it, I would feel all okay, all right? Nothing. There is nothing we are getting from continuing this policy that is in any way to the benefit of our society. And... There's also the racial component. And I, I think don't think you can talk about the drug issue or prohibition issue without mentioning race. And I, the reason I say oh, yeah. that is the first anti-opiate laws we ever saw in America were on the West Coast. And they were against the Asians who were coming over here to find a new life in America. And the articles in the paper said that they're luring the white women into the opium dens with them, and that's why we have to ban that, 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 okay. Yeah. The first anti-marijuana laws we saw was in the Southwest. There was a little different. They're bringing this, they're smoking this weed, and they don't work as hard in the fields when they're smoking the weed, so we got to get a good day, so we got to. The first anti-cocaine laws were in the 20s. Here we go again. Those black jazz musicians are stealing the white women with the white powder. That was the stuff that they were talking about, uh, why they had to be a cocaine. It's on the record. Oh, yeah. And here's the one that everybody misses, alcohol prohibition. And I have people say to me, alcohol prohibition racial. I go, yeah, let's look at what was going on in America when we started alcohol prohibition. 
We were coming out of the 1800s into the 20th century. There was a movement in this country called the Protestant Reformation. There were two groups of people those Protestants did not like. Those people were called Catholics and Jews. Pouring in through Ellis Island at the beginning of the 20th century were Italian and Irish Catholics and Jews from Western Europe. Who were the gangsters and thugs of alcohol prohibition? Hmm, Italian, Irish, and Jews, oh my. <laughs> now, why is that? Well, my mother, who was born in 1904, I remember her telling me that she remembers reading in the Buffalo newspaper that there would be an ad, help wanted man needed to do work, and the last line of the ad would say, Catholics need not apply. That was the attitude this country. I'd like to point out that we have our first Catholic president was in 1960. And I also like to point out, if you think that prejudice is gone, our only Catholic president was in 1960. <laughs> okay, so we I don't think we're completely recovered from that stupidity. But we banned alcohol, which was the drug of choice of these Italian, Irish, and Western European Jews that were coming here. And they couldn't get jobs in the normal marketplace. So what they did was they went into this underground marketplace so they could feed their family and put, you know, a roof over their head and food in their belly and stuff like that. And when Bill Bennett was drug czar, I remember this speech like it happened two days ago. He's standing up and he's talking and he says 85% of the cocaine users in America are white, male, high school educated with a full-time job. And I look at any prison in America and ask, do you see that reflected in the prison system? 85% of those people being white, male, no. They're high melanin content people, you know, and, and that's because that's the excuse we're using. These stop and frisk things that they're arguing about in New York City right now, that's all racial. Exactly. Uh, uh, Jack Cole, was in New Jersey State Police when they were doing the racial profiling stops and stuff like that. It's always been racial. And it's and we and, and there's two reasons for it. Uh, one is in the inner city, most drug dealing is public. Street corner. In the suburbs, most drug dealing is dining room table. And then in, in the suburbs, most of the white people who live in the suburbs, when they get their drugs, is there's like a group of five or six people. One of them has a connection. The rest of them, he think that one person picks up the drugs. They bring it back to the rest of them. They all come over for dinner. They split it up at the dining room table. The guy that goes and gets it gets his for free, and everybody else gets taken care of. They're not, you can't get a narc in there because they're not looking for new customers. They're just taking care of themselves. And so it's easier to set up a camera and a window in the inner city and view the drug dealing and make the arrest. It's much easier. And I'm going to tell you something shocking about police work. Uh, we're just like everybody else. We do whatever is easier. <laughs> and I'm um, taking a quick break here from my interview with Peter Christ of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I'm joined now by... KKSM News Correspondent Toby Macy with the Top of the Hour News. Take it away. Good evening. It's 7 o'clock and I'm Toby Macy with this KKSM News Brief. The southbound lanes on the I-15 in Mira Mesa will shut down this weekend. Travel on the southbound lanes will stop from 11 p.m. Friday night to 5 a.m. Monday morning. The closures are from Camino del Norte to Miramar Way. 
The Mira Mesa ramp is scheduled to open by fall 2014 and is the final such structure to be built along the 20-mile express lanes network. The rain moving across the Southern California has helped douse the remnants of the wildfire that blackened thousands of acres along the coastal mountains. After making the hills muddy and slippery, making the job just that much harder for firefighters, the 44-square-mile burn area was finally contained. Investigators ruled out arson as the cause of the fire and instead believe it was started by an under-determined roadside ignition of grass and debris. The fire threatened 4,000 homes but damaged only 15. The current estimate of the total damage is about $290,000. The Senate has passed a bill today that would widely subject online shopping to state sales taxes. The bill passed by a vote of 69 to 27, showing support from both Republicans and Democrats. Under current law, states can only require retailers to collect sales taxes if the store has a physical presence in the state. With this bill, big retailers such as Walmart, Best Buy, and others will now be able to collect sales taxes on goods sold on the Internet. Online retailers like eBay and Amazon don't have to collect sales taxes except in states where they have offices or distribution centers. In the House, Republican Speaker John Boehner has not yet commented publicly about the bill. A 93-year-old man was arrested today on allegations he served as an Auschwitz death camp guard. Hans Lipschitz was deported from the U.S. in 1983 for lying about his Nazi past. He was taken into custody after authorities concluded there was compelling evidence he was involved in crimes at Auschwitz while there from 1941 to 1945. Lipschitz acknowledged being assigned to an SS guard unit in Auschwitz, but maintains he only served as a cook and was not involved in any war crimes. After a 5-1 win against the Diamondbacks on Sunday, the Padres are here at Petco Park tonight at 7-10 to start their next series against the Miami Marlins. The Padres' current season is at 13 wins and 18 losses. The clouds are in and seem to be staying for the night, with a 30% chance of rain tonight around 11. The temperature is currently at a chilly 62 degrees in San Marcos. Broadcasting live from Palomar College, I'm Toby Macy, KKSM News. Thank you, Toby. So excited to hear about Padres doing good. Not excited about the internet sales tax. <laughs> but I'm uh, going to take a quick commercial break, then we'll be back with my guest, Peter Chris of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And uh, later in the half hour mark, I'm going to, uh, since the interview will be over by then, I have my second guest for tonight, which is Rick Jonko and David Morales of Project Yano, which uh, does education on the myths of military recruitment. And the third hour, I have Canadian politician John Chablock. So be sure to stay tuned. KKSM AM 1320, The Radio Revolution, podcasting on LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network, and freethoughtmedia.org. Be right back, guys. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320, Oceanside, com. Something must have gone terribly wrong because KKSM let me on the air. Do you think I'm crazy? I'm not crazy. I just believe in you. Come hang out with me, Eric, every Tuesday, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., where I'll play all sorts of music. Anything from pop to punk. I'll even play some pop punk. I'm no doctor, but I think he's brain dead. Yeah, and? I'll keep you informed with traffic, concert, and sports updates. And we can't forget about the theme song, Throwback, your weekly dose of pop culture nostalgia. Join me for Tuesday afternoons with Eric, only on AM 1320, KKSM, the radio revolution. You're my friends now. We're having soft tacos later. In every age, a technology is created that upends the foundations of society. The wheel, the printing press, 
the internet. Now, in a world sliding into financial chaos, a new technology is changing the way monetary systems work around the world. It is called Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a new form of money controlled not by banks, governments, or corporations, but through mutual commerce between free individuals. To learn more, visit WeUseCoins.com. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. The most sexually dangerous radio station in San Diego. Do you have any control over how creepy you allow yourself to get? Okay, so we added sexually in there. But we have hired better security, KKSM. The Radio Revolution. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. For those just joining, for the past hour, I've been speaking with Peter Christ of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. The interview continues right now. And and that's why you see a lot of this. <coughs> and and again, just the racial aspect. We're still a we're still a racist society. I mean, we're, it's going to take us a long time to recover it from that. But we're we're moving. <laughs> you know, we've up, we've upgraded the melanin content of the White House, so that's not a bad move. <laughs> Definitely, and and uh, you know, again, it is, it is pretty racial in its effects on arrests, but and and also on its effects on other countries. You know, especially like we mentioned Latin America, because the United States government has treaties with other countries that say if you have these illicit drugs available legally then we will not do certain trades with you so we export our drug policy by force to other countries in order to trade with us um, so what's the effect of the United States exporting our drug policy around the world especially with countries like Mexico with uh, and talk about the homicide rate well yeah they've had I think I think the number is close to around 60,000 in the last eight years killed wow. down there in in, 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 in in Mexico this is it amazes me because we think it's both well, a drug trade. You can go to Mexico and walk into a pharmacy with a prescription by morphine. No shoot 'em ups, no gang banging, no nothing. Legitimate business. You go two blocks over and walk up to a corner to buy heroin, which is fundamentally the same drug as morphine is, almost exactly the same drug. Okay. You buy heroin, and now you risk of being shot, being killed, being robbed, being this. The only difference between those two drugs is one is illegal, one is legal. And that's the fundamental thing that we have to do. And and uh, I've been in this movement for 25 years now since I retired in 89. And I've been struggling within this movement. I spent all through the 90s hearing from other people in the movement telling me I can't use the L word. Don't use the L word. Don't talk about legalization. You can't talk about legalization. And I said, it's the only thing I can talk about. <laughs> it's the only, I mean, I'm a cop. It's either legal or it's illegal. That's the only two things I know, you know. And I had I had somebody say to me that, uh, well, if we legalize drugs, we're going to have we're going to have drug dealers on every street corner in America. And and, and uh, what, what, what these drugs need to be, they don't need to be legalized. They need to be regulated and controlled. And I stopped them and I said, where do you live where we don't have drug dealers on the street corners in America now? Mm-hmm. 
right, with the prohibition. Secondly, you want to regulate and control anything, it has to be legal. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as it's illegal, you lose all your ability to regulate and control it. And the process of taking something that is illegal and turning it into something that is legal, we call that process legalization. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. It doesn't, again, like I said earlier, it doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't, it just simply means moving it from an illegal marketplace into a legal marketplace where we can have control over, where we can set standards for purity, where we can set standards for age limits, distribution points, and we can control import and export, you know, across our borders and stuff like that. Um, we at LEAP have no position as an organization on how these drugs should be regulated and controlled. We are, we are not regulators. We're enforcers. We're simply telling the rest of society, look, it, we have a job to do. We understand the job that we have to do. <clears throat> when we're doing that job, you people tend to help us because we're protecting you from other people doing you harm. So you report things when they happen to you. You give us descriptions of people that did them to you. If we find them, you identify them and help us convict them in court. On the other hand, I arrested people. I, 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 the way I put it is this. I never once in 20 years had anybody walk up to me and say, officer, officer, that man sold me drugs. Never happened. <laughs> I would arrest people for drug possession and say, where did you get them? And they would say, I found them because they didn't want to get the person they bought them from in trouble, even if they were going to jail. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't win a, a, a law enforcement battle like that. It's simply not a law enforcement function. I worked in a community of 85,000 people. Two incidents come to my mind, and one of them was a father who found out that his son had committed a rape, and he turned his son in to us for the rape. Another one was a mother who found out that her son was committing burglaries, and she turned her son in for committing burglaries. 85,000 people live in that community. Not once in 20 years do I know of any parent that turned their kid in for drug possession. <laughs> and I cannot believe that somebody didn't open up a drawer someplace and found something hidden underneath the socks. I mean, that had to happen, but when it was their kid, the last thing in the world that they wanted was the criminal justice system involved. They wanted to find another way to handle it without, on the other hand, when it was harming other people or breaking into people's houses, that's a different set of circumstance. I'll even turn in my own kid for that, you know? So it's, it, that's the difference. There's a, there's a wonderful book out there. A guy by the name of Peter McWilliams wrote it back in the early nineties. Ain't nobody's business if you do. And is the title and the subtitle of it. I thank him every morning when I wake up. I say thank you, Peter, because he introduced me to the term consensual crime. And that changed from victimless crime to consensual crime for me. And, and you know, in your life, you've said to people, well, that's a victimless crime. And people say, well, what about the families? What about they start giving you such a list of victims? But, Sexual crime is activities between consenting adults that they want to do together. And if you, like I said earlier, if you're prohibited, you create crime. If there's money involved, you create violence. If this, if this is dangerous, 
activity, you might want to regulate it, okay? But you don't want to ever prohibit it because the people aren't going to stop. You know what the first example of prohibition was that we have any record of? Um, mm -mm. Started with these words. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> Location, a little place called Eden. How many people had to be watched to make that prohibition work? Two, Adam and Eve. How many trees of knowledge were there in the garden? One. One. Okay. And who was the cop for that prohibition? The all-seeing creator, right? <laughs> it sure worked. Why didn't it work? Well, if you read that story in Genesis, it tells you why it didn't work. And it also tells you why it's never worked since. Because it says in there that after the creator created those two people, the creator granted something to that creation. And that was called free will. And when we make laws like this, we are trying to legislate away that creator-given gift. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. I had a guy come up to me at the end of a Rotary Club a couple of years ago, and he said to me, you know what they do in Saudi Arabia if they catch you with drugs? I said, yep. They take you down in the middle of the town square and they chop your head off. And he very smugly said, yeah, that's right. And I said, I only got two things to say about that. <clears throat> One, call me crazy. But when I think of countries I want America to be more like, Saudi Arabia is not one of the first ones that pops into my head. <laughs> and two, you know what they do every year in Saudi Arabia when they catch people with drugs? They take them down to the town square and they chop their head off. You know why they do it every year? Because it doesn't work. If it worked, the rest of the people see that head rolling through the courtyard, that would be the end of the drug problem, not me. But even with that punishment, people continue to choose to do it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, going back to the numbers argument that, uh, oh, everybody's going to go out tomorrow and do heroin. Portugal and Holland, not legalized, just decriminalized, you know, the halfway marker, not dealing with the marketplace. 40% decrease. And what would happen with the marketplace if it were completely legalized? Not more street corner people, but more brick and mortar people actually have checking ID at the door, uh, yeah. being friendly, maybe actually creating a few jobs, paying taxes, uh, et cetera. And that you know clearly falls in the face of all this kind of so-called conventional wisdom about the war on drugs, which is really just uh, absurd, and, and, and it definitely falls hard on, on, in regards to civil liberties and racial discrimination. For those just joining, I'm speaking with Peter Christ. He's the founder and vice chair of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Um, talk a bit about the uh, Time for Hemp radio show that you have co-hosted. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's Casper Leach does uh, the Time for Hemp every, every uh, Wednesday on American Freedom Radio. Uh, or he does Time for Hemp every day on American Freedom Radio. Wednesday, <coughs> excuse me, about three and a half years ago, he turned Wednesday over to Lee. So Casper's the host always, but I'm his co-host, and then we have another person to leap on. Awesome. So, so we always have myself and another leap person on. So we we uh, normally don't do call-ins because there's just it's an hour show and there's just you know so much to be between the commercials and stuff like that. But it's if you people want to tune in, it's American Freedom Radio time for hemp. Also, if I can plug something else, sure. I got a, I got a, a, a thing up on YouTube. 
And uh, the title of it is, if you search this phrase, you'll find it. It's retired police captain demolishes the war on drugs. By the time you get to DEM and demolish, it'll pop up. You'll see it. Uh, it started, we put it up in October, and it had, uh, by the middle of December, we had like about 40,000 views. Wow. And then it kind of laid there. It went up a little bit every day, every day. And then about three weeks ago, all of a sudden, it started jumping up again, started jumping up again. And now I think we're at 223,000 views. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's a piece that I did, so I'm a little... You know, it's me, <laughs> but uh, I think it's a good piece because it, it, one of the things that I like to point out to people if they listen to it, I think I used the word maybe once marijuana in the whole thing. None of it's about marijuana, just like our discussion today has been about whether it's good or bad or anything like that. That has nothing to do with it. It's uh, it's it's again about consensual adult activity. In fact, you know that we've had we've had a couple states that have actually legalized murder. No, I haven't. Yep. Uh, Oregon being one of them. You know what they call it? What? Assisted suicide. Yeah. Now, in other in New York, if you want to die, you've got a terminal illness, you want to die, but you're paralyzed, so you can't do it to yourself. And if I help you do it, I mix up the thing and I give you the IV or I do this, and then you die, I'm arrested for manslaughter. That's considered a murder charge in New York State. In Oregon, because it's between consenting adults... They consider it uh, uh, assisted suicide. That's what I'm talking about. Things be now they regulate it. I can't just go around killing people and saying, "Oh, they said they wanted to die, and that's it." No, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of hoops you have to jump through to make sure that everything qualifies because it needs to be regulated. Because we're talking about the death of a human being. But once all those things are satisfied, then it's up to that individual to make that choice for themselves. You know, I got. We use the word liberty a lot in this country. We got a couple monuments too, with a bell and a statue and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. it's supposed to be important to us, liberty. But I think that sometimes we use terms without really understanding what they mean. And I like to tell people just so they know where I'm coming from. Here's my definition of the word liberty. Liberty is the right to be as stupid as you choose to be as long as you do not harm another person or another person's property. Now, I have people say to me, oh, you're just trying to be silly when you say that. I go, no, no, I'm dead serious, and I'll tell you why. There is a phenomenon that you can track all the way back through our evolutionary history, and that phenomenon is known as stupid, crazy genius. And here's how it plays out. Uh, you and I know each other. We grew up together. We had this other friend named Tom. You've been out of town for a long time. You're back in town for a visit. You say to me as we're talking, how's Tom doing? And I say, Tom. you know, we used to think Tom was pretty bright. He's stupid, I'm telling you. He spent the last year and a half over on top of the hill over there. And get, are you ready for this? He thinks he's going to catch light inside of a glass ball, and he thinks he's going to light the world. I mean, how stupid can you be? <laughs> Two years later, we run into each other again. We're talking. You say, hey, what's Tom up to? I go, you know... I thought he was stupid. He's wasted another two years. He's crazy. I'm telling you, he's out of his mind. He still thinks he's going. A year later, we run into each other, and before you get a chance to say a word, I say, did you hear about Tom? <laughs> what? He caught light inside a glass ball. He's going to light the world. He's a genius. Every great new idea that our species has ever come up with 
The first person that thought of it was labeled by everybody else as being stupid. If they persisted in that idea, we then call them crazy. And once the rest of us caught up and figured out that they were right in the beginning, we <laughs> then called them geniuses. Now, I all got to add real quick at the end of this that I admit that at least 90 to 95 percent of the people out there that are stupid are, in fact, stupid. They're never going to be geniuses. OK, I understand that. All right. But until we get to the point that we don't need the geniuses anymore. We have to protect all the stupid people because you don't know which ones are the geniuses until the whole thing plays out. Now, we don't let them hurt other people or other people's property. For that, you go to prison. But just acting out your life and doing things that we may not think is very smart or whatever, that's your choice in a free society. That's what liberty means to me. Exactly. And that's a that's a great definition, and I definitely ascribe to that, too. Um uh, Leap was definitely very instrumental in pa in helping to pass uh, the different legalization initiatives around the country, and uh, w was also involved in the Caravan for Peace. Again, talking about uh, what uh, unfortunate things we do to our uh, neighbors in Mexico because we export our, our drug policy, um, and, and it was great to be there with uh, Leap in, in the San Diego stop. Um, what what is in store for Leap in 2013? Well, we uh, we just got back. We had four people over in Vienna at the UN uh, drug conference, so we were we're sticking our nose into that. We now have we have a Canadian chapter, we have a Brazilian chapter, and we now have a European chapter. Andy Machan has started up. So because this is an international issue, we're not going to solve this. Just I mean, if if America did away with Schedule One tomorrow and went to a regulated control marketplace for drugs, I think it would affect the whole world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think oh, yeah. because. We're the big prohibitionists in this movement, okay? But there's a bigger world out there, and that those changes have to come about within those in that world too. So we're doing a lot of work in that area. Uh, DPA conference coming up next uh, fall, so we'll be down there with all our, you know, rings and bells on. We're still doing, we're still building our speakers bureau. We're still, we just got a very important part back at Leap, and that's a guy by the name of Mike Smithson, who is now in charge of our speakers bureau and is. Dynamite. You've met Darby. You know how good she is. And uh, we're getting the word out. We're getting the word out. I firmly believe that all we have to do with LEAP is make the noise. Mm -hmm. And people will hear it. And again, it's like I said before about the, about the veterans against the war. We also are that group that you can't dismiss. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. When I got into this movement in 1989, if you were going to have a drug policy debate, you got a hall someplace, and at one podium you put your local prohibitionist, and at the other podium was the goofy hippie who thought the drug should be illegal. Okay, that's what it was like when I got when I started in the, in the early nineties. That dynamic has changed, and let me give you the perfect example of that change. The current drug czar, Gilakowski, before he became drug czar, he was chief of Seattle, Washington PD. Okay. And he's the drug czar. So we'll put him at one podium. So who are we going to put at the other podium? Well, how about the chief of police from Seattle PD that he replaced who retired, Norm Stamper? So now it's which chief of police you're going to listen to. It isn't that you're going to believe the hippie or the drug czar. Mm -hmm. Because it's the same credentials now. Mm -hmm. And if you put a judge up, we'll put a judge up. You put a DEA guy up, we'll put a DEA guy up. 
It's now equal for equal, and it's now the argument. And when I do debates, I start the debate by my first thing I say to my audience whenever I do a debate with another law enforcement person is, let me tell you what I and my opponent agree about completely. All these drugs are horrendous. Don't do any of them. They're destructive. They cause problems in society. We both thoroughly agree about that. We are not here to argue or try to convince you that these drugs are bad. We both agree they are. What we're here today to talk about is how do we as a society deal with this problem? Mm -hmm. He thinks a policy of prohibition that has 12-year-old kids selling it on the street corners and no control over purity and distribution and regulation of this and no taxing it. He thinks that's a better system. I am up here recommending a regulated and controlled marketplace where we can deal with this thing as a healthcare problem. That's the only thing we're debating here today. Exactly. And when you do that, you can hear all your opponent's armor hitting the floor because <laughs> how bad these drugs are. I'll give you that. This isn't anything about how bad they are. Of course, they're terrible. Don't do them. But how do we regulate it? How do we control it? Here's the deal. I, I just started doing this about a year ago. When I'm at a Rotary Club, I'll start off my thing saying, before I get into my presentation, I'm going to ask a question. And the question is this. I want you to raise your hand if you believe that we can win the war on drugs. Now, hang on a second. Before we know what win the war means, we got to define it. We won the war against the Italians, the Japanese, and the Germans back in 1945. Okay, we won that war. That doesn't mean that every couple months or so we fight the Italians, the Japanese, and the Germans. That means the war's over, we won, it's done. So if we win the war on drugs, that means the drugs are gone, we've taken the word heroin out of the dictionary, we've eliminated the drug problem, the drugs are gone. Does anybody here believe that that is possible? Nobody ever raises their hand. And then I say, okay, that means that we're not going to be standing here talking about how do we become drug free because we've all agreed that that's not possible. So now let's really have the discussion. Drugs are always going to be a part of our society. Who do you want to run the marketplace? That's the only discussion. There's no other discussion. Do you want gangsters, thugs, and terrorists, or do you want licensed, regulated, and controlled business people? That's the only discussion. There's no other discussion to have because the discussion about making them go away, we all have just agreed, is not possible. Yeah, and we've been having that discussion for the past oh, 70 years or so. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know. <laughs> well, I would encourage everybody to check out www.leap.cc or copsaylegalizeddrugs.com. Simply search up Peter Chris. It's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T, Leap, on YouTube, and you can find that viral video. Make it even more viral. Um, and again, Peter, Chris, founder and uh, vice chair of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, thank you very much for joining the program. And as I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again, Alex, thank you very much for sharing your audience with me. And if you missed any part of the podcast, it's up on iTunes. Search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. That was my guest, Peter Christ of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. My guests in the next hour are Rick Janko and David Morales of Project Yano dealing with the myths of military recruitment. But before that and the commercial break, I have the prison song by System of a Down here on KKSM, The Radio Revolution, and LRN.FM, The Liberty Radio Network.
movement to clamp down with your iron fist. Strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Following the right movement to clamp down with your iron fist. Strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Corporate media sells you superficial music, movies, and rams a rigid left-right political paradigm and two-party system down your throat. My name is Alex Fiddle, host of Free Thought Radio. Tune in as I give voice to the unsung in the musical, cinematic, and political philosophical world. Instead of listening to neoconservative hacks on AM radio, hear the alternative voices in the independent, libertarian, and progressive viewpoints in contrary to the establishment news sources which censor the government's true actions as an aggressor around the world and expose yourself to different artists and genres of music as true art makes life positive and fruitful. Free Thought is live Mondays, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on KKSM, The Radio Revolution, and podcasting throughout the week at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network, freethoughtmedia.org. Free Talk Live. Well, I'm a working police officer. I'm actually on duty in a small town in Central Texas. I've been doing this job 10 years. 99% of what you guys talk about is dead on. We got guys getting into this profession just to wear a badge and play God. Mm. 
it's getting worse and worse. There used to be a couple of decent guys that I worked with. Both of them have quit. Why did they quit? Well, it's because of the BS. We can't help the people that actually need help, which is what you get into this job to do if you're, if you're a good person. It's interesting that whenever honest cops call in like you, we get the same story. That the corruption rises through the ranks, that the good guys, the guys like you that got in to make a difference and actually help people and catch the real bad guys, the guys like you end up getting frustrated by the system, frustrated by the corruption and the bureaucracy, and they end up quitting, which of course means that more bad guys can move in and move up through the ranks. Is anything inaccurate about that? No, sir. That's my point entirely. Free Talk Live, seven nights a week from 7 to 10 Eastern, live on the Liberty Radio Network at lrn.fm. What does freedom mean? Tune in to lrn.fm to find out. lrn.fm is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. lrn.fm show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to lrn.fm via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at lrn.fm. That's lrn.fm. KKSM. We're like the Goonies, but with ADD. The Radio Revolution. Joining me now is Rick Jankow and David Morales of Project Yano, which stands for the Project on Youth and Non-Military Opportunities. Uh, Rick and David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. No problem. So um, each of you, uh, who, whoever wants to start first, uh, just introduce Project Yano, what the name means, and what the significance of the acronym is. David, maybe you could explain the uh, acronym. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Project Yano stands for uh, Youth and Non-Military Opportunities. Um, basically, we're, uh, we're an organization based in San Diego um, that does a lot of work um, in in different events, different schools, and our goal, our aim is to to inform students or just inform individuals on on alternatives to the military, or to to inform them of the realities of the military. What basically what military recruiters won't tell students or, or individuals. Definitely, and and um. What what's the significance of the of the acronym uh, Yano? What it, what, what it uh, relates to in, in a similar Spanish uh, term? Yeah, I guess uh, so. Yano means uh, like pretty much uh, like enough is enough, right? So like Yano, um, and I guess it's like a play on words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, it's just uh, Yano as in like enough of the military, right? And I think this is very. Uh, particular of San Diego, but, you know, not limited to San Diego, but especially here in San Diego, there's a lot of uh, militarization. Um, the, the schools in San Diego are, are embedded with our, uh, yeah, there's so much military. We see military uh, in our communities and billboards and, and media and schools. So uh, we're pretty much saying that, you know, enough, en- enough is enough with the military and we want to seek uh, alternatives uh, to the military. Definitely. And certainly we've got militarization of our skies now with drone technology. Uh, Rick, do you want to take a, uh, uh, you are one of the, the board members of Project Yano. Do you want to discuss uh, the founding of the organization and uh, general mission statement? Sure. The uh, organization was founded in 1984. And I think that uh, part of the uh, reason for it was that some of us had been involved in 
anti-war organizing during the 60s and 70s. And at that time, there was a, a military draft. So much of the organizing focused on the draft. And we felt that in the 1980s, there no longer was a military draft, but there was a form of conscription that we called the economic draft. Um, people were enlisting in the military in part because uh, their, their, economic, uh, their, their socioeconomic status pushed them in that direction. That is, they felt that they didn't have many other options. And we thought it was important to address that economic um, dimension of military enlistment and the impact of war and militarism on poorer communities and working class communities. So we decided that Project Yana would the, be the best way to do that, um, in part because we were learning, I think, lessons from the past. Uh, our experience during the Vietnam War was that more attention was focused on uh, individuals who were being conscripted, but we didn't really look at how that had a, a greater impact on poorer communities. So we wanted to... Uh, we wanted to uh, advance our work and uh, address that dimension. And one way we did that was that from the very beginning, we began to collect information on alternatives to the military when it comes to uh, getting job training or financial aid for college. And, and so we compiled information about programs that were available to young people. We um, translated the information into Spanish and we began to distribute it through schools. And that's pretty much how the organization got started. And, and the purpose uh, is really to make sure that young people know there are alternatives to going to the military, that they can pay for college, that they can get job training. And we wanted to find some way to help them uh, uh, learn about that and learn about those different alternatives. Definitely, it's very, very important that they do. Um, what, what, what kind of rhetoric or, or information do students face in high schools and universities, and in some cases, much earlier in their educational careers, in regards to what military recruiters uh, give them as far as information and rhetoric? Uh, I think I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information that is left out um, when it comes to to uh, recruiters. And their their interactions, their contact with students. I think in, in a lot of high schools, uh, military recruiters uh, uh, illustrate this 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 picture um, for students, and, and 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 they promise them, you know, uh, uh, an enlistment, a service without without a deployment, um, service with rewards afterwards, such as uh, money for for education. Uh, uh, without risk of being harmed, so it's very, very romanticized, um, and I don't think the 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 recruiters the recruiters don't do a very good job of telling the students what exactly they're getting into. So I, for this reason, I think uh, you know the work that that Project Yan does in, in high school uh, career fairs and in classroom presentations, uh, in different events around the community uh, like Chicano Park Day or just other events like Earth Day as well is really important. Definitely, and it's because they are definitely sacrificing their lives at at the end of all this. Rick, do you want to do you want to add on to that? 
Well, you asked about um, uh, the the kind of uh, rhetoric or uh, information that's in our school system, and I think it is important to point out that it does go all the way down to the elementary level. Um, the, the the recruiters are pretty much trained to sell uh, to individuals who are approaching enlistment age, but they're also advised to go younger and to begin to groom people uh, from an early age for the idea of becoming a warrior or becoming a soldier. And so they are, in fact, instructed to go to elementary schools, and there are programs that go down to that level. Uh, for example, the um, Starbase program is the Navy's program, and it tries to use the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs that schools are are, are, are really supporting these days to, as a way to enter into the elementary school level. Um, they have their own uh, approach to STEM, uh, which is the, the uh, acronym for, for that, that kind of curriculum. And what they're really doing, though, is trying to get young people acclimated to the idea of being in the military. They take them out to military bases, for example. Um, the Marines have a program called the Young Marines, and the, those uh, units are in about 300 uh, elementary through high school uh, level schools. So it, it really goes down uh, to the basic uh, beginning of education where they're, they're doing this work. And a lot of times they, they tend to uh, emphasize leadership, leadership skills, um, uh, for example, in, in different high schools. In fact, in, in, in my former high school a couple of years ago, um, they they persuaded students to join uh, the the JROTC program. Uh, it was at Mission Bay High School um, by by telling the students that if they did join, they would gain leadership skills. Um, so this is also part of the the rhetoric that they use to try to persuade students or to try to recruit students um, into JROTC and into the military as well. Definitely. Uh, what do you guys engage in to give an alternative viewpoint to an obviously life-changing or life-ending decision? Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, we we do a, a lot of presentations at, at high school career fairs. Um, different high schools around San Diego sometimes invite us uh, to their career fairs or college fairs. Or um, we also uh, do a number of classroom presentations uh, throughout the year where. Uh, different teachers that, that we know of, that, that know the work that Project Gano does, invite us to their classroom and we present there with the students. Uh, we've given workshops at a uh, uh, university uh, high school conference, for example, when, when Mecha or different uh, uh, university organizations hold high school conferences, they, they invite us uh, to give workshops to students who attend these conferences. And we also, um, we also staff tables and different events like Chicano Park Day, like Earth Day. Uh, we used to even uh, staff a table at, at Warp Tour um, you know, a couple years ago. Cool. Uh, so we, we try to reach out to the community, to young, to young people, youth, as much as we can through these different uh, avenues. Rick, you want to go ahead and add on to that? Um, 
I guess what I would add to it is that in addition to the direct outreach to young people, we, we work at a policy level as well and try to encourage policymakers to adopt uh, restrictions on the activities of recruiters in schools. And one example is a coalition that we helped to form. It's called the Education Not Arms Coalition in San Diego. And one thing that they did that was very effective was uh, mobilize students and parents and others to ask the school board to adopt a, a, a policy on recruiting activities. And it, it, it doesn't ban recruiters. That wasn't really the goal, and it's not our objective. But what it tries to do is uh, put restrictions on the kind of activities that will go on in schools, and it applies to all recruiters with the idea that if, if everybody has to follow these uh, these guidelines, then there will be a more balanced picture for students to see. Um, whereas prior to that, uh, when students would go to their schools every day, especially in, in schools that have a large number of uh, students from working class families, they would always see military recruiters in their schools, but they would rarely see college recruiters. Mm -hmm. So the idea here was to create some limits that would give students a more um, uh, balanced uh, uh, perspective or opportunity to find out about other options as well. And the San Diego City School Board adopted that policy. So that's just an example of policy level work that we do. And uh, in addition to that, we're working nationally with other organizations around the country that do similar work. Um, we're part of a network, a national network. We uh, participate in discussions about um, uh, strategies and uh, what to do, for example, about military aptitude testing in schools, which is a common thing that happens across the country. And by engaging in, in these kinds of networks and, and discussions, we try to advance a, a policy that will help students see a more even picture Definitely. And um, what, what are some of the information that you guys relay to, to classes or at career fairs that um, sort of uh, counter uh, the, the, the information that is put out by the, recruiter, the recruiters? Um, so a, lo a lot of our information, um, uh, you know, just informs, gives, gives students a better idea of what the military is really like. Um, Whenever we do classroom presentations, we like to show uh, a film, which was actually produced by the American Friends Service Committee, that exposes a lot of these myths about the military, about you know receiving money uh, for college after service. Uh, we you know inform students that uh, military contracts, for the most part, are for eight years and not for two years or four years, as uh, Recruiters make it out to be in high schools, um, so we do. A, we we inform students a lot on the reality of, of military service, um, but also apart from from exposing the realities of the military, we we definitely inform students on on alternatives to the military. So we provide information uh, on financial aid. We have a, a, a different documents, um, different brochures. We have one that uh, lists different career uh, careers uh, in, in uh, social justice uh, so we try to 
we try to not only expose the realities of the military, but also offer these alternatives uh, to the military through financial aid and other career opportunities. One thing to um, emphasize here is that we rely primarily on military veterans who share their personal experiences to give uh, young people a more realistic view of uh, not just the military, but what it's like to be in war. Um, and we try to involve veterans at all levels of the organization. So we have some veterans on our board. We have veterans who are volunteers who go into schools. And, um, and they help us generate the, the printed information, the literature that we distribute. But the video that, uh, that uh, David mentioned is mostly testimonials from veterans uh, talking about what, what their experience was like compared to what they were led to believe it would be um, when they first talked to a recruiter. Definitely, and and certainly, uh, uh, one reality is is the sequester with veterans' benefits and salaries being cut, but we're not touching the empire or foreign adventurism overseas, or or you know f- giving many profits to the military industrial complex. What what are some of the realities of employment, finding work after the military, and and everything like that? Well, one thing that that uh, many people don't understand when they're talking to a recruiter is that recruiter is focusing on just getting them into the military, getting them to join. And they'll tell them all sorts of things that make it sound like it's a great deal and that, that when they get out of the military, um, it'll make it easier for them to find a civilian career that uh, they would like, uh, that, that, that would be enriching and, and valuable uh, and uh, sec- that they can succeed in. But the reality is that uh, young veterans have a much higher unemployment rate than non-veterans of the same age. And part of it is because uh, while they're in the military, they're being trained for military jobs. And when they get out, they find out that sometimes the training that they got um, is not immediately transferable. And they have to go back to school and study in order to qualify to get the kind of career that they want. And one example that's, that's uh, often mentioned is medics in the military come out and they find that there's really no uh, job in the medical field that they can get with their experience as a medic. They, they have to go back to school in order to become a nurse, for example, or to become an emergency medical technician. Um, and, and the other reason that uh, the unemployment rate is so high is that um, uh, uh, employers are uh, they're looking for some a different kind of experience a different kind of job experience that um, that is important in the civilian uh, circles in civilian uh, employment but it's not the kind of model that is used in the military and so they're 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 probably a little bit prejudiced uh, about that when uh, a vet comes to talk to them and uh, about a job and they're wondering you know whether this person is really adjusted well enough in order to uh, work successfully in a in a civilian environment. Um, so so this is uh, this is a reality. It's not something that we. Um, we think is right or good, but it's a reality, and it's a reality that often young people don't see until it's too late. Um, what is the reaction you guys get from students? Um, persuasion rates 
and, and maybe even them coming back to you years later and then thanking you for the information you provided to them? Uh, you know, it, it's interesting um, because I think what I've what I've experienced just by uh, doing different presentations at different schools is that there's a lot of students who, high school students, um, who are actually, you know, thinking of joining the military. Whenever we give presentations, you know, there's usually, you know, students in the audience that, that are thinking of joining the military. And after the presentation, from what I have seen, based on my experiences, these students who make it apparent, who make it obvious that they want to join the military during the presentation or, or even before, um, come up to us, come up to me and, and tell me that, that they've changed their mind or that they're they're now beginning to, to think about it uh, critically or or have their reserves about it. Um, so based on my my experiences, um, I think the work that we do in classrooms definitely helps to persuade students or, or at least to, to inform them of what they're really getting themselves into. Um, perhaps Rick can talk about maybe uh, if, if students, in fact, have come back and, and thanked uh, the organization. Well, they have. Um... But we're more likely to hear about the impact, I think, right after we've had a chance to speak to them. Um, every once in a while, we'll find out uh, or, or we'll encounter some, somebody, a, a young activist or an organizer somewhere else or working in, a, in an organization or doing labor organizing, for example. And they'll mention that they had contact with us when they were in high school. And uh, we, we, we kind of feel like we had a hand in at least steering them in that direction because uh, one of the things we talk about is uh, finding careers that, that don't just generate income but um, careers that give you an opportunity to address problems in the world and in your community. And so um, that quite often is how we find out about uh, people later on who might have been influenced by us because we, we do interact quite a bit with community organizations. And, and sometimes that's where um, people wind up working and, and uh, we reconnect with them. Mm -hmm. um, for those just joining, I'm speaking with David Morales and Rick Jankow of Project Yano, and it stands for the Project on Youth and Non-Military Opportunities. They seek to educate students and youth on the truth about military recruitment. Um, what role do you think the glorification of war in our classrooms and, and by war is committed uh, under the rule of both major political parties since pretty much the founding of our countries, including even downplaying the massacring of Native Americans and sort of giving our young people a more nationalist mindset, uh, making them vulnerable to the arguments given by military recruiters. Do you think that has an impact? I think that our school system has um, a lot of uh, weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses, uh, from my perspective, is that it does not teach enough critical thinking. Um, or at least it doesn't teach people how to think critically. And uh, sometimes... Uh, we encounter people when we're in the schools who have this view of, of what the military does that, that to me, uh, is not based on reality. And, and I have to wonder where they got that idea, but it's, it's pretty prevalent in our culture. People are, are taught to believe our military is only there for defense. It's the, 
it's the reason why we have our freedom today because of, of our military. And what I see lacking is any real understanding of how our military is really, how it is used, how it's used for political purposes. Um, I don't think that people who join the military join for that purpose. I think that, that quite often they're the ones who are most surprised when they find out that they're being sent to some part of the world where um, they, they don't think that there really was any threat to us, but they, they've already joined and they're obligated. Uh, and then quite often their families and, and their communities feel that they have to show support for them. So they, they often then don't see the bigger political picture and instead they just concentrate on um, cheering on our troops. Um, and, and I think the school system is partly responsible for this because they invite programs that come in, for example, the junior ROTC program, which teaches from a curriculum that is pretty much designed by the Pentagon. And when you, when you study that curriculum, you see how it, is, uh, how it spins issues to make um, it look as though our military does what I described earlier. It, it's only out there defending us and protecting our freedoms. And um, those young people who go through that program, they repeat those lessons in their other classes and they, and they, they repeat them to their, their peers and their families. And this is how um, these myths spread. So I, I think that there is a serious problem with the educational system in that I don't, I don't believe that it, it is sometimes really there uh, trying to uh, help people think critically about the world and, 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 and explore um, realities. And, and instead, what is there is it's to reinforce myths. Certainly, and, and just coming almost fresh out of high school a few years ago, and then switching, you know, uh, there was definitely a difference between history taught in high school and history taught in universities. And David, I know you attend and you're a uh, university and you're also, uh, you know, again, recently out of high school. Describe the kind of contrast between the two systems and, and where the curriculum kind of um, conditions uh, the young people uh, towards uh, that, the military recruiters. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that you mentioned that because I, I actually um, I recently conducted some research on the JROTC program um, and the and the curriculum and the pedagogy of the JROTC program um, through a research program at, at UCSD, and I, I actually found that um, as Rick was saying, like the 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 pedagogy that that JROTC, like this military course enforces, is very much. Uh, authoritative and, and it lacks critical thinking skills. So students in, in, in JROTC are, you know, just like the military, are just taught to follow orders. They're taught to, you know, to, to, to groom themselves, to, to, to be robots, essentially, to just follow orders, um, to follow instructions. And I also found that, uh, Rick was talking about earlier, that the, the, the curriculum, the textbooks that they use, which are, uh, which were, which are ordered by the Pentagon, um, oh, yeah. definitely downplay the the you know the Native American Native American massacre. Uh, they glorify like this idea of manifest destiny, um, and that's it, and it's very explicit the way it's mentioned in the book. Like it, it says it, and they use the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, and this is this these are the textbooks that that were being used 
And maybe, I don't know, maybe you can correct me, but perhaps they're still being used in other parts of the of the country. Um, but, I mean, it's definitely different, you know, in the university level, um, when, when, you know, when you compare uh, history classes or, or even eth ethnic studies classes, right, especially uh, to, to classes in, in high school, definitely to JRTC, uh, you know, in the university uh, students are are expected to think critically of, of different issues to discuss uh, and, and look look at history through different perspectives while at the high school level and specifically in, in JRTC students are just presented with with one one view and are expected to 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 uh, follow that or, or believe in that uh, uh, perspective I, I would add one thing that um there, there are a lot of students who feel very positive about their experience with the junior ROTC, and we, we recognize that. There are some things that the program does that um, benefit people. Our, our point is that students can gain those benefits through many different means, and there should no it shouldn't be necessary for them to put on a uniform and be put into ranks and learn how to treat each other according to those ranks and learn how to salute and learn how to march and learn how to basically be like a soldier in order for them to feel confident about themselves and to develop leadership skills that's not necessary our schools are supposed to be um, zones of civilian control not military control and we should be instilling people with democratic values so that when they go out into civilian life they'll be able to function uh, successfully in a world where um, military values are not the controlling factor and it's also important for our own political well-being as a as a country to to be in control of um, the military's influence and involvement and and not to surrender that control because a program comes into a school system and says hey we'll teach self-discipline we'll teach leadership um, that's not the real purpose of those programs, even though, you know, people feel that's what it's doing. The real purpose of, the, of, of a program like that is basically to militarize. Mm -hmm. Definitely. For those just joining, I'm speaking with David Morales and Rick Janko of Project Yano. It's Youth and Non-Military Opportunities. Um, how can students and youth get involved and um, um, what is the, uh, the current like, uh, student and youth involvement in Project Yano uh, today? Um, so Project Yano, you know, has, uh, since I've been involved, which has been probably like five, six years, um, we've always had uh, high school students. I mean, I, I joined Project Yano when I was a, a junior in high school. Um, and even now there's, there's, uh, uh, high school students involved, uh, with Project Yano. I think currently right now there's a, there's a more, uh, university, uh, level or college students that are involved, which actually joined when they were in high school. Um, but I mean, there's definitely opportunities for, for youth to get involved. 
you know, the youth and component uh, to Project Yano is is really important. Um, uh, you know, so so you know, there's definitely room, yeah, for for youth to get involved. We have a uh, uh, monthly meetings. Um, you know, we we uh, a lot of the times we ask you know high school students to help put on these presentations at other high schools or at other other uh, career fairs or at different events. So, uh, you know, definitely the the youth component is really important to Project Yano. Rick, would you like to uh, add to how people can contact you to get involved? Uh, well, they can always contact us from our website, projectyano.org. There's a, a way to, to communicate with us. There's a volunteer form that you can fill out online. Um, and we're interested in hearing from students who are concerned maybe about um, what the military is doing in their schools, and they would like to talk to us about what they can do. There, there are things that students can do in their own schools, and, and we'd be happy to, to share our ideas with them. Uh, we're especially looking for uh, students who can help us document uh, uh, activities by recruiters that we think are, are going beyond um, what's reasonable and uh, that uh, that could lead to some sort of a policy change in a, in a particular school district. Uh, but it's really students who come to us and share those uh, accounts of, of what they've seen and experienced that makes a difference in, in, in achieving those kinds of policy um, goals. And uh, uh, in the North County, uh, uh, for example, I don't think we've heard it from enough students, but we know that the same thing exists there in terms of recruiting activities as, as exists in San Diego, where we're, we're a little bit more active. So it would be good to hear from students, in fact, from all around the county. But our website is, is I think, the, the easiest and best way to make contact with us. Uh, can and do professors and teachers ever reach out to you to bring you to present to their students? Yes, they do. Um, and uh, it's actually students can talk to their teachers and, and professors uh, about inviting us in. But, but quite often it's the teachers who make contact with us and they say, well, come on in. Uh, they know that there are recruiters in their schools. And so their goal from their perspective is just to basically give the other side. And that's really what we're about, is is giving people a more balanced uh, picture by uh, telling them some of the things that they're currently not hearing. Totally. Do, do you guys have any final words on what the, uh, what the organization does or just the issue of military recruitment in general? Um, no, I mean, I, I just think, uh, you know, you know, I want to thank you for, for definitely having us on, for giving a you know, people an opportunity to hear about the work that we do. I think it's definitely important for for this work to to uh, continue to be you know to be uh, to be happening. Um, you know, in, in San Diego, I think uh, you know, in a lot of the the circles that I'm involved with at school at UCSD or just in the community, Project Yano has really become like the go-to organization whenever there's anything going on with the military or whenever. You know, somebody needs any any sort of literature, any help, any uh, you know advice regarding the military. Um, so I think uh, you know it's important work. And again, thank you for for uh, giving us this opportunity to share out uh, uh, the work that we do. 
And, and I would echo that. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a chance to talk to your listeners. And, uh, and I would just say that you know, our, our main goal is for young people to make good, educated decisions about their lives and to look at all their possibilities, and that's what we want to encourage. No problem. Well, and thank you guys. Definitely. It's very, very educational. I think it's a very great issue that needs to be brought to light. And it's like you said, it's just balance. It's hearing the other side. If you don't hear the other side, you're not going to be able to make an informed decision. But uh, I've been speaking with David Morales and Rick Janko of Project Yano Youth and Non-Military Opportunities. You can check them out at www.projectyano.org. David and Rick, thank you guys very much again for coming out by the program. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. No thank you. Podcasts are on iTunes. Search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC, freethoughtmedia.org. You're listening to KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320, The Radio Revolution, PalomarCollegeRadio.com, Facebook.com slash KKSM Radio, and also LRN.FM, Keene, New Hampshire the Liberty Media Capital of the World, facebook.lrn.fm, and it is time for the news. So I mentioned the strike on Syria, and uh, Israeli source for, told RT that Israel has no problem with provoking war in the entire region. Talked about the first San Diego Bitcoin ATM and uh, rated medical cannabis dispensary operators speak out against the DEA. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, it will all be there. Um, in national news, Afghan President Hamid Karzai admits to taking secret cash from the CIA and Britain's MI6, denies taxpayer dollars from the U.S. and Britain were used to buy off warlords in Afghanistan, that the bribes were for above-board operations only. <laughs> oh, it just it doesn't get any worse. Only except... Um, you know, they were a small amount, and he says he will continue to accept cash as soon as it continues to come in and doesn't see it stopping anytime soon. The IRS hates Bitcoin. The IRS already gets a piece where you swap one product or service for another, as the IRS explains at its bartering tax center. Soon the IRS may have a Bitcoin center too. Tre the treasury unit called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Yes, Bitcoin is a crime, huh? <laughs> Already has rules about Bitcoin and the IRS is likely to follow. Oh, please. If the IRS really was about going after financial crimes, they would go and tax the Federal Reserve bankers that they serve and throw them in jail and throw away the key. This is just another area where the evil IRS wants to make slaves out of those of us who wish to own the fruits of our labor and not fork it over to the Federal Reserve bankers who use the IRS as a collection agency for debts owed to them by the U.S. government. Saudi intelligence warned Homeland Security about the Sarnev brothers. The, king, quote, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia sent a written warning about accused Boston bomber Tamerlan Sarnev, according to the U.S. Department, or no, sent the information to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in 2012 long before pressure cooker blasts killed three and injured hundreds. According to a senior Saudi government official with direct knowledge of the document, the Saudi warning, the official told Mail Online, was separate from the multiple red flags raised by Russian intelligence in 2011 and was based on human intelligence developed independently in Yemen. 
despite the exponentially growing homeland or sorry end quote despite the exponentially growing homeland security department since 9/11 and all the intrusive police state measures we've had to bear for average peaceful Americans and despite the previous intelligence from both Russian and Saudi sources they were still not able to stop these guys reports have stated that that homeland security have even intercepted Sarnev in 2012 in person but let him go and said he was not a threat either these guys are complete idiots or they let this slide speaking to Ohio state graduates President Obama says don't listen to certain opinions President o o Obama warned the grads to reject voices that warn about government tyranny. Unfortunately, you've grown up hearing voices that incessantly warn of government as nothing more than some separate sinister entity that's at the root of all our problems. Some of these same vo voices also do their best to gum up the works. They'll warn that tyranny is always lurking just around the corner. You should reject these voices. Because what they suggest is that our brave and creative and unique experiment in self-rule is somehow just a sham with which we can't be trusted. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves, away from the guilty. Yeah, <laughs> I think both of those were lies. You should listen to people that warn you about uh, government tyranny, and we don't have self-rule. That is another lie. Well, we do have self-rule. It is a natural thing, but unfortunately, the government puts guns in our faces to force us to uh, against our own wills. But in brighter news, Maryland repeals the death penalty and legalizes medical cannabis. Yay! The uh, Guantanamo hunger strikes embarrass Obama, causing him to issue more empty promises. Now, there's a great letter from one of the uh, detained prisoners on the hunger strikes. I happen to think that, as you know, Obama's not going to close it. And hey, who cares about the closing? Like, why not just stop the torture and the indefinite det detention and all, all those types of things? That would be good, a good enough start. You know, just stop the practices that go on there. But in other good news, Americans are actually resisting surrendering, surrendering their civil liberties in the name of safety. As I always say, there is a huge disconnect between people and politics. In the book Declaration of Independence, by Reason Mag by, uh, written by Reason Magazine editors, they state politics is a lagging indicator. A Time uh, CNN ORC poll shows just that, that people are not willing to put up with a police state in the name of safety. Post-9-11 sensationalist propaganda, Freedom Fries, and Kiefer Sutherland TV shows are no longer having the effect once had on Americans causing such brainwashing. In local news, Encinitas Water Department to fluoridate water starting July 1st. The Olivenhain Municipal Water District received a $1 million bribe from the California Dental Association to accommodate the equipment costs to fluoridate the water supply. This in accordance with California state law mandating water fluoridation. But you know, segregation and Nazism were laws too, so I don't think that's a good argument. Why not some, some balls here, some cojones, you know? Sodium fluoride comes from aluminum and fertilizer industry production. 
Remember the Texas plant that exploded? Hydrofluorosilic acid comes from phosphate production, which involves uranium in the processing of it. Uranium in your water. I tried to get an interview with these guys. I went, like I mentioned before, before I ran into the situation where I, where I had to do some cop blocking, I was actually on the way to the water district to try to get an interview. Didn't get one, but hopefully. Prosecutors say White House shooter allegedly angry over marijuana policy. Now, a crazed person opened fire at the White House in a drive-by in 2012 or 11 while President Obama was on vacation elsewhere. The prosecution alleges the shooter thought Obama was the Antichrist and thought enforcement of marijuana laws were bad. Now, no actions of, of violence ever represent any movement or idea or people as a whole. So it's a bit fishy that from the prosecution side, this is what they claim. I suggest they lock the prosecutor in a room with a drunk and then in a separate room again with a high person. I guarantee with enough alcohol, the drunk will become violent and when enough cannabis the smoker will want to take the prosecutor to taco bell do not let the government try to brandish any movement with the actions of an insane individual use your noggin see through the lies congress again voted on this obscene internet sales tax they can't keep their hands off the last bastion of freedom and true democracy and free markets can they obama golfs with the republicans as if the bush library scene wasn't proof enough that all these guys are the same First 3D printed gun hits the market and Senator Schumer wants to ban it. Taking away the basic right of the people is no longer possible with 3D printing, but busybodies like Schumer will still try. Officer faces lawsuit over warrantless entry and arrest. It's only breaking and entering if you don't have a badge. This is what the Third Amendment was written for, guys. The Ten Amendments don't really create or grant us our rights. They simply list the rights that already exist in our humanity and are inalienable. Those 10 things are just merely suggestions that the government don't tread on anyone. And the uh, it was Lexington officer Ronald Kornrumpf. State Department official claims U.S. knew about new Benghazi attack was a terrorist attack as it was happening. Marijuana may be effective against HIV. Studies show that the cannabinoid THC weakens the virus. Searching for a suspect, police shot friendliest dog in the neighborhood. Police claim the dog tried to attack a canine, canine officer and shot it. But as we see from many drug raid videos, officers shoot dogs of nonviolent homes where the dogs are nonviolent as well. Where the only evidence of a crime was ash on a marijuana pipe for personal use from a person completely unassociated with cartels or guns. PETA really needs to jump on the war on drugs in regards to animal cruelty. Department of Justice stands up for police filming and a surprising ruling the DOJ rules on the side of the people in Maryland. Justice Department wrote two letters to the U.S. District Court in Maryland supporting the constitutional rights of citizens arrested for filming police officers on duty. Woman who killed police officer in 1973 put on terrorist watch list a Shadda Shakur member of the Black Liberation Army who allegedly killed a police officer many, many decades ago and now lives in Cuba has been placed on a terrorist watch list. Not that her actions, if true, were justified, but given the vagueness of the term terrorism and her action for several decades, how easy is it really for the U.S. government to arbitrarily declare someone a terrorist? Florida sheriff wants you to snitch on your neighbor for their peacefully held political views. Sheriff Bradshaw wants you to snitch on your neighbors if they have quote-unquote anti-government viewpoints. 
The goal won't be to arrest troubled people, but to get them help before there's violence, Bradshaw said. As a side benefit, law enforcement will have needed information to keep a close eye on these guys. We want people to call us if the guy down the street says he hates the government, hates the mayor, and he's going to shoot him, Bradshaw said. What does it hurt to have somebody knock on their door and ask, hey, is everything okay? That's enough for Senate Budget Chief Joe Negron, our Stewart County or... Um, Florida, who helped push through the funding last weekend for such a program. Oh, they have a program for it. <laughs> he said he met with Bradshaw about the program and got assurances from the sheriff that this is going to be done in a way that respects people's autonomy and privacy and makes sure that protect people against making false claims. Oh, please, that's why I'm, you know, ranting and raving about this whole thing is because people will make false claims and their paranoid, you know, brainwashed sensibility or lack thereof. You know, and the fact that they have a program for it is even worse. You know, this is a lot like the Soviet Union or, or any kind of top-down authoritarian country. Thought police. Leaving judgment up to neighbors bombarded with scare tactics and propaganda is never a good thing. This also assumes anyone who has a distaste for government or holds libertarian or anarchist views are somehow all mentally troubled, which is quite prejudiced and stereotyping. I reject this stereotyping from this sheriff. Like Muslims shouldn't be stereotyped, like anybody should be stereotyped. No, but no one should be stereotyped if the consequence is having yourself being reported to Homeland Security for doing nothing except having your own mind and existing peacefully here on planet Earth. In international news, German Euro co-founder calls for an end to the catastrophic Euro experiment. Calls for the fiat currency to be broken up. In other news... Unfortunately, one of my heroes, Slayer guitarist Jeff Hammond, passes away from complications of liver failure. And the Westboro Baptist Church plans to protest his funeral. Have they seen Slayer fans? I think they'll get what's coming to them. Finally. Also, LSD inventor Albert Hoffman is dead at age 102. Weather outside here in San Marcos, where KKSM broadcasts out of, is 63 degrees. There is a 49 mile per hour slowdown, five northbound, 76. And that does it for the news. Now, to go along with military recruitment, the theme of my last guest, and to pay tribute to Jeff Hanneman, late guitarist of Slayer, this song is perfectly titled Expendable Youth by Slayer from their album Seasons of the Ab Seasons in the Abyss, and then after that, Endless War by Realm. Here on KKSM, the Radio Revolution, and LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. Rest in peace, Jeff. Oh, I can't wait to see videos of the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs>
me something to dance to. KKSM, Oceanside, AM 1320, The Radio Revolution. I've been told no in many different ways. I give you an order and you're going to obey it. Who told you to go this way? You can't do that and you have to leave here. You cannot bring Simon to the rally. Walk with me. Well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm comfortable here, actually. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. hey. Who do you think Excuse you are? me. There is no video allowing this. Uh, no, I have work today. This is you ain't gonna make. Wait, you gotta Wait a minute. Whoa. Hey! Oh my god! Unbelievable! Why are you running from? Because you're scared me. What am I being detained for? You're being served. What is this? What is this? Bureaucrats have a funny way of telling people no. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. You can order your copy of the Director's Cut DVD now at victimlesscrimespree.com. KKSM. We must be flipping out. AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. Joining me now is John Shavlock. He is a candidate for member of Legislative Assembly in Delta North, British Columbia and Canada. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me, Alex. No problem. Uh, discuss your activism in, in particular for standing up for uh, the Native people uh, in Canada that were trampled upon by the Canadian government and how it is indicative of world events, both past and present, uh, you know, as a whole throughout history that that have been having governments stamp on Native peoples, whether gen- through general oppression of rights or, or downright genocide, like in the past with America's Manifest Destiny, or uh, in modern day with the et- ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims in Burma. Um, what's your take on, on those types of situations, especially like uh, the one you, exp- you uh, helped fight for in Canada? Well, that's obviously the only thing I can really speak on personally, but I grew up in uh, Saskatchewan, and uh, there's a large First Nations population in in that province, and I didn't realize it, um, but I had a real estate business, and I rented to First Nations tenants and helped them work through the process and use the government services that were available to them, and they had approached me with stories yeah, up here there's been a case uh, that clarified the issue called the Stone Child case, but at that time, in the late 80s, there was nothing public about it. But they were insinuating that the police would leave them out of town, and in Saskatchewan it's 40 below for six months of the year. And as these First Nations would freeze to death, they would call it a suicide. I made inquiries about these things, and as I said, we were looked down upon for helping them with their rental concerns and government concerns. And uh, the next thing I knew, well, I should point out that it took me years to put all this together because I've heard these things from the people that, uh, but the bottom line was, is I ended up uh, framed for trafficking two counts for a total of eight grams of cannabis. And I lost my real estate business, 43 apartments and houses in a nightclub and a restaurant. And I went to jail and didn't see my children for two years even though the court was fully aware, the older gentleman that had sold my tenant this cannabis 
uh, and his dad owned a TV station, and uh, they didn't want him. So I stood up in court and said, there's nothing wrong with cannabis, and they sentenced me and convicted me of this, probably for that statement. But uh, since that time, um, I've been fighting. Uh, I'm not sure if you want me to go into this, but I've been in every election here in B.C. since the last time I wasn't on the ballot provincially was 1996, and I'm currently on the ballot. And I'm a co-founder of the BC Marijuana Party. Uh, been involved on the executive of all the mainstream parties here in Canada. Uh, I brought the legalization of cannabis policy into three parties formally. And uh, where I come from in Saskatchewan and in the entire country, First Nations are still being treated like, you know, uh, I say dirt because there's 500 women missing in Saskatchewan, my home province, and because they're native, nobody seems to give it down. But I'll take a breath there in case you have anything to point out. For oh, I, I wanted to touch up more upon uh, what you talked about being framed, because um, I know t- so many times do the government uh, pick on people that are outspoken on issues um, and, and, and do these types of things. Uh, wh- wh- why do you think do you think it's a coincidence that those charges were brought up? Well, no, and at the time, uh, during the trial, I found out that the police had spent considerable time and energy. The police officer was bragging about making $5,000 in overtime trying to catch me doing something, and that I must be a criminal mastermind because they couldn't catch me. And I was told that it was because of my efforts with the band offices and uh, personal Native friends that uh, there was some racist Saskatoon police, and uh, I was targeted. The fact that they couldn't catch me doing anything, I said in court, was that I simply wasn't doing anything. I was a real estate broker at the time. I should point out one more thing, Alex. The police officer that was involved framing me, while I was in jail, there was a a particularly famous case in Saskatchewan in 1992, I believe it is, called the Martinsville, Martinsville Child Rape Case, and that police officer was the police officer that was charged um, and, as an alleged child rapist. Uh, he beat the charges, and, and when he did beat those charges, I was removed from jail formally, and the warden told me that, and something that's never been made public, is that in the identification room, all of the children identified this police officer's brother who hadn't lost 50 pounds like the police officer, was uh, wearing glasses like his brother. Anyway, they all identified the suspect's brother, and they had to let the police officer off. So the warden removed me from jail at that time, because I'd always screamed about that, and placed me in a halfway, uh, you know, early release type program where I was allowed to work, and I was still under lockdown and after certain hours. Wow. Um so, so in addition to and including cannabis, um, what are some other issues that uh, concern you? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm on the federal Liberal Party's executive, and I've made uh, proposals as far as handling some of the First Nations issues. But for 20 years, uh, I've campaigned for not only cannabis, but your right to die with dignity, which we don't have that right here in Canada. Uh, and as a military veteran, I've tried to stop this boondoggle, uh, $35 billion for jet fighters and things like this. But I'm basically known as the common sense ca- candidate, and I've raised things like here locally, like it is now mainstream, calling for a unified police force. And yet four years ago in the last election when I ran against the attorney general, he was against it. 
just a month ago he came out with a big press release calling for a unified police force so I felt pretty good about that but some of my a lot of my issues are now mainstream except obviously for your, your right to die with dignity which is slowly getting there mm-hmm. uh, discuss your many r- runs for office uh, what, what makes you run around, want to want to run for office and how many to- how many times have you run, ran for office and uh, ha- what uh, how many of them have been victorious or close to uh, who your opponents uh, were well, it- I should point out that, and, and again, it's never been, no offense, but it's never been about winning. I've never run in, in the same place ever until actually this last week when I signed up here for Delta North. I've always run in a different riding. It's about education. I'll, I'll tell you honest, quite honestly, when we started the BC Marijuana Party, I mean, that was the equivalent, to, and no disrespect, but it was like starting the pedophile party to some people here. Marijuana was such a dirty word. Uh, we were making political statements and calling out the hypocrites and all these other parties. Um, so it's really never been about that. But I've run in, uh, this is my fourth consecutive provincial election. I've run, I've had six federal election fights being on the ballot the last two as an independent. I ran for the president of the federal NDP party of Quebec City in 2006 after I worked for the leader at that time for four years to get a resolution that would call for the legalization of cannabis, I traveled all the way to Quebec City and was told by the leader that they were afraid to let me speak about the issue because the penitentiary and police unions told them that chasing potheads provides $100,000 a year jobs and good union dues to thousands of employees. So we were denied being able to speak on the convention room floor after I spent wow. board and spent 5000 to get there. But anyway, so I challenged the presidency to be able to say the word cannabis. In 2007, I uh, were, uh, attempted to run for B.C. Green Party leader, and because of my criminal conviction at the last minute, I was not allowed to, but I was through that process. Um, I've numerous, numerous, numerous internal elections in all of these mainstream parties. Like I said, I was, I am or, or was on all of their executives or councils. And I've started, I helped, I've, I was a member and helped with the beginnings of SAFER in Colorado, groups in Nevada. We started the Marijuana Party in Saskatchewan and other provinces. I'm involved with people actually all over the world trying to get these things going. Uh, everybody seems to know my nemesis, my arch enemy, Mr. Mark Emery, who in reality has done nothing politically. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's about promoting himself, and uh, I'm going to be publishing a book about his story if he comes back here when he gets out of jail and again gets as stupid. But uh, nobody seems to know me because it's never really been about me. It's about the issue, and as I said, nobody in this entire country has done more uh, politically to see cannabis dealt with. For those just joining, I'm speaking with John Shavlik. He is a candidate for Canada's MLA in British Columbia and the Delta North District. Uh, so I, I know you mentioned um, Mark Emery, and uh, I wanted to know what you thought about um, uh, his wife running in the uh, Canadian provincial election in your former Green Party uh, that you, you used to belong to, um, um, what what you your take is on that? Well, anybody that stands up and runs, uh, you know, I support and I admire that. 
The problem with Jody Emery is that she's in a party that she's afraid to call out. She's afraid to tell the voters that the work of myself, David Malmo, Levine, Dana Larson, people like that in the 2001 provincial election, we were able to scare Adrian Carr of the BC Greens about she adopted the legalization policy. Uh, Jane Sturk took over the party, and I tried to run against her. They had me uh, excluded because of my criminal record, as I said. And uh, in 2009, they quietly changed it from legalized to decrim. And that's when I quit the BC Greens and the website link. If you just go, why or Shabrock's quit the BC Greens? Is quite a page of cannabis culture calling out Jody about now calling the, the Greens on this, and now she's running for him again and pretending like it's not an issue. Well, it is to me because that makes the Greens irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and do you think that they uh, that if they took it all away and said legalization, which was is better for the people, and regardless if it can be translated into policy or not. That's the thing, Alex. This is, uh, you know, what we have here is a situation where the leaders are coward. Uh, she's an elderly uh, woman, and this has to be, I don't even think the members know that she cowardly rescinded the legalization effort. Like I said, if you read all about it, uh, or if any of your listeners read about it, that Shablik uh, quits the Greens, they'll get an eye-opener about Jody Emery and what's going on. That's the point. Uh, the BC Greens are, to me, ir- irrelevant, and they don't have the guts to, to stand up for this stuff, especially with their federal party. As I told you, I got them to formally adopt legalization on uh, October 11, 2007. I'm ashamed of Jody Emery that she doesn't have the guts. That shows she's just like her current husband and all about infamy and herself. Um, this whole thing, like I said, I personally feel responsible for this change in Emory while he's been in jail, because I know he reads every word anybody says about himself, because he's an egomaniac. So I, and he's quoted things I've said from jail in his own little jail blogs. So I know I'm resonating with him, and I may even postpone my book about him if he comes back and he's not an idiot again. But Jody Emery running for the BC Greens in this situation and what she's doing to me is irrelevant, and it writes off the blood, sweat, and the tears of so many people that worked. Don't forget, we tried in Canada for over 40 years to get a political party that would even touch the cannabis issue. People, when I was at the NDP convention, after I was able to get the first resolution to legalize cannabis, and I took Jack Layton's orders to Quebec, and then they turned into cowards. We had 75-year-old people came up to my wife and I and started to cry that they had tried since 1972 to get cannabis talked about. Well, like I said, we established uh, with Adrian Carr in 2001 because we scared them. Our first election, we set a record. We were, we're in parliamentary history for the legislature history because we set a full slate of candidates and ran in the first nine months and um, had like 65,000 votes or whatever it was. Like, we scared them. They came out for legal pot. That was the end of it. Now, all of a sudden... Their leader doesn't even talk to the members, changes the policy, and we're supposed to just let that slide? Sorry to keep talking. Oh, it's all right. And, you know, we do definitely have the same situation in here where the two major parties uh, do not want to take up the issue, even though some in their ranking do want it, and uh, but nobody really is pushing for it um, 
for the uh, the Green Party of the United States is for legalization of cannabis. They're diff- different organization. Um, same with the Libertarian parties, and I do believe the Justice, Peace, and Freedom, and all the all the alternative parties, and maybe and a lot of independent candidates. Uh, so you know, uh, uh, it's unfortunate to hear that uh, Canada, which is, uh, I think, uh, was you know often uh, amongst the people more cannabis friendly. The politics does not reflect that. No, but that's simply because you know what, Alex, we need an hour. If I give you a brief outline, because our system is just as corrupt as yours, we've got a prime minister that nobody can confirm or get him to say anything, but he got Texas religious fundamental money, took over a party called the Reform here, browbeat everybody. He's known as the biggest bully in the country. This guy, there's, he, they've been charged for uh, election fraud. Uh, they Basically, this is a guy that stole the Canadian election here. Uh, he's got 36% of the population. I mean, 64% are against this guy. They used breaking laws and criminal activity to take over here. Uh, they had the RCMP, who the police, of course, love our government because it uh, fits right into their plans. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, we're being led by a di- dictatorship that fraudulently has power. And uh, people in the United States, you're, it's as big a joke down there. Your two-party system... The corruption, you know, there's so many. I don't, you don't even want to start me on the American things because obviously, after 20 some years of this, I know how bad it is down there, and uh, your public, like ours, don't seem to care. And uh, d- yeah, I definitely agree with the education thing. That it's definitely that's certainly one of the most important components of all this. Um, uh, also, um, what has been your experience with the political system? Uh, and and how it can be an obstacle to independent voices such as uh, ballot barriers and, and um, you know co- collusion between major parties to uh, protect incumbency. Well, I don't know if you've read anything I've written, but I've pointed out to people that nothing, uh, not our constitution, not our charter, nothing even mentions political parties. That they've taken over the power that the voters have. In fact, as a member of all these parties. I found that I had to sign a document that would that said I would listen to the party leadership instead of the voters to get my nomination. I, I, I've written that less than 1% of the population belongs to these parties, and yet a third of that, less than 1%, is now running our army or justice system. It's corrupt. It's a mess, and it's terrible. But it's unfortunately, the only way you can fight these guys is to fight fire with fire. That's why I've been doing the elections. That's why I've been standing up, because that's the only time that you can actually have your voice heard. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, given your distaste with the political parties, why did you decide to leave the many different political parties you used to once be in, such as the NDP or the, uh, or the Green or Marijuana parties in Canada? Well, the Marijuana Party, uh, again, as a, as a co-founder of the BC Marijuana Party, we sent money to all four of the potential leaders of the NDP, Mr. Jack Layton won, and he came to us, and he asked us to all help him, and he was going to legalize. So a bunch of us signed up the next day. Three of us quite prominent, Kirk Tussaud, Dana Larson, and myself. Uh, I worked very, very hard. As I said, I did get the resolution that would have given the NDP legalized cannabis policy and had it approved by 83% of the average 75-year-old people in my riding. And we took that and gathered up. Out of the 600 resolutions for their convention in that year, 2006, 
200 of them ended up dealing with the drug war. But as I myself and Kirk approached the floor, we were shut down immediately. And I told you already that they sent agents to meet us on the train and told my wife and I they weren't even going to allow us. That's why I ran for president. Well, after I did that, I came home and I wasn't, I'd already stood for three federal nominations for them. All of a sudden, I wasn't allowed to do that because of so-called uh, my presidency run. So I quit, joined the, uh, uh, called Jack Leighton, the leader at the time, a coward. That's another story because two police departments came here and shook us down pretty bad and, and with bogus uh, false charges. But anyway, I went to the Green Party, and uh, 10 months later, I did get them to say they'd legalize pot. October 11, 2007 was their release. And... Uh, there was a lot of internal, uh, people just have a problem with this issue. I don't know if it's their Bible or what it was. And I was taking attacks from the NDP that knew I was moving a quarter million votes to the Greens. In fact, the Greens had their highest showing ever with me involved. But all of a sudden, as I stood as a candidate for the 2008 federal election, three days before the election call, all of a sudden the Green Party used an 18-month-old complaint that was already dealt with, and that's confirmed by a newspaper here in Vancouver. And I was labeled an anti-Semite and removed. That allowed the leader, Elizabeth May, to break her promise to raise the cannabis issue, you see. It's always come down to the cannabis issue. Well, I ended up suing Elizabeth May for libel, and if you'll check, you'll find that my wife and I, in a four-year court effort and a seven-day trial, beat four lawyers, including Elizabeth May herself, and... Uh, proved that I was liable twice. So, you know, again, the corruption. You know what they did in this country? They changed 144-year-old libel laws to get Elizabeth May off, or she would have owed us $800,000. That left me with a $70,000 legal bill. I appealed that, and the three... All of our judges were replacement judges. The judge on the case ended up being a friend of Elizabeth May, I suspect, because... Uh, the judgment came out on Elizabeth May's birthday, and there was somebody of the same name that was a member of her previous organization. But anyway, I appealed the thing, and they replaced all three of our appeals judges. And after eight hours of arguing this thing, the head judge looked at me and said, Look, we didn't even read your case. We don't even care. Elizabeth May is somebody, and you're nobody. You're a pothead. In fact, you won't even be able to get a transcript of this because we're appeal judges. My wife and I looked at each other, and we knew that we were in one of the most corrupt countries that, that exists. There's no such thing as justice in Canada. Wow. Um, why, 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 given those you know, circumstances with you leaving all these political parties, why did you decide to run as an independent for uh, MLA in Delta North, B.C. this time around? Well, because I'm standing up to try to stop a group which is... Uh, ex-friends, basically, because they all now, I call them pimps of pot. They're all making money with the so-called come cash in at stores. They call them compassionate clubs. And they want to, now they've got a thing called sensible BC. I call it sensible BS uh, because they're trying to take the wind out of the sails of the legalization movement. It's like Proposition 19 in California. I was involved with uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger came out a week before the vote and, and brought in decrim. Well, that took the wind out of the sails of that election. And with the growers and the pimps of plot all, grow, uh, all voting to kill it, it did die. Well, I knew Mr. Lee. It was his money. And people don't understand to get something like that on the ballot in the first place is very hard. Plus, it sent a message to the world 
that legalization had failed. So the reason that I'm running is partially to, to stop this sensible BS. And, uh, again, I raise issues that finally get, I do resonate, I know that, based on what's happened. And to be honest with you, I don't know anybody more qualified to do the job than me. Definitely, and and I definitely agree with that sentiment in regards to Prop 19 uh, being from California, volunteering for the campaign. Uh, I definitely do think that Schwarzenegger's move was a, a diversion tactic to kill That's the... They're doing here. Don't, I, I'm not sure if you're you're aware, but I just... Uh, well, there's other people involved, obviously, but I just got the Liberals to say they'd legalize. Uh, the Liberal Party is the most successful party in Canadian history. We just got the new leader... Uh, Justin Trudeau, who's the son of a prime minister, and what the public doesn't understand is that uh, he himself voted for mandatory minimum jail sentences, has never supported legalizing cannabis. At the convention in Ottawa, after I took it from the last place resolution to the fourth biggest, and their number one resolution as far as social media and things like that, I sat in Ottawa at the convention, again, going into debt to get there, and uh, Justin Trudeau was busy telling the media how the resolution, he won't support it, and he's against it. I took him aside, and, and I should point out another thing. Because of the attacks and things that I've taken, people can go to YouTube and see videos I recorded of police with a spy camera that looks like a pen. So I had this pen in my pocket, and I'm illegally able to record anybody in a public place. I took Mr. Trudeau aside and reminded him of his own smoking of cannabis in Vancouver in 2004. We ended up having a very good conversation uh, where he stopped being a hypocrite and admitted the truth. And then after that convention, the, the resolution did pass. They tried to stop it. I, I won't get into that now, but they, we did get that passed. And then when I came home, I wrote the party, told them I had the video, and that I would release this if Justin as a YouTube video if Justin Trudeau didn't come out for legalization. Well, that took nine months, and just like in all the other parties, I pushed the issue so hard that I become a pariah. I don't care. This isn't about me, but I will not allow lies and games in these parties. You have to understand one more thing. Mm -hmm. I left the Liberal Party in 1978 because we had legalization policy then, and they turned coward and wouldn't do anything. Like, I'm, I'm 56 years old as of uh, Monday, and I've been involved politically for a long time, uh, formally only in the last uh, 15 years. But uh, I've, obviously I just pay attention. But uh, there's a lot still happening. We're still second-class citizens. First Nations have been dealing with the same kind of backlash and crap for 100 years. And I should also point out that my two oldest children are uh, full-status First Nations people, even though uh, I had no inkling at the time, but in Canada through the 90s, they rounded up all the numbers of the First Nations people because of the treaty negotiations that were going on, and it turned out that their grandmother was partially First Nation, and they made everybody in the family to that line in the sand First Nation. So, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about that. That had nothing to do with why I was involved in the first place. It's since developed in the 90s. But I've always had, uh, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't matter if it's First Nation or the homeless or drug addicts or single mothers or all these different groups that I've stood up to try to help people. I just hate bullies. I tried to explain my whole family. I, I grew up listening to my grandfather's stories of the brutality, beatings, and jailings he took 
when the Russians came in through Stalin and killed my entire family. It was either you ate the dead relatives that were shot in the head or you starved. Now, I'm the first and only shavlik that exists after my entire family was killed. I'm first-generation Canadian, immigrant Ukrainian, and I grew up listening to these stories, so maybe that's why I am the way I am, because my grandfather prepared me. Just yeah. tell your listeners to just Google Holodomor. It's the Ukrainian Holocaust. If yes. they knew the story on that, you'll never see movies about it, but you do about the Jewish Holocaust, uh, which is fine. I just wish there was more about ours. Mm-hmm. But you, so for some reason, and I'll tell you why, if we do have the moment, because my grandfather told me a story about why Ukrainians were persecuted by the Jewish people. And I, as I said, I learned an awful lot when I was labeled an anti-Semite. Uh, by the Green Party to remove me about the cannabis issue, but uh, apparently the Ukrainians were volunteered and helped the Nazis, and, and I'll tell you, all of us have been paying ever since. But my grandfather told me why that happened, and during the Holodomor, he, he was a freedom fighter, and he was jailed and brutalized and beaten, and their leader was invited to Paris to, to get help from the, from the uh, Jewish uh, banks, and when he got there, they shot him seven times in the head. And this is directly from my grandfather, who's been dead for 20 years. But uh, I am not anti-Semite. I am not anti-anything except stupidity in bullies. But I, like I said, had to fight for my name and prove that I was liable twice and that I wasn't anti-Semitic. But in this country, even just saying the word Jew gets people uh, trying to label you an anti-Semite. There's a complete history on me. I've been screaming for 20 years about what happened to me. I understand nobody cares until they go through it themselves. But uh, somewhere down the road, I'm hoping that real journalism does show up because everything I've said publicly or is available public, in fact, including videos of police shakedowns, as I've said. After I called Jack Layton a coward uh, from the Ottawa or the Quebec City Convention in 2006 and came home, Two police departments showed up here and uh, said that they had a threat against me that I had threatened to cut up somebody's children into little pieces. And that was witnessed by not only my wife, but my youngest son. And the only thing that saved me that night was the fact that my son was up in the window and pointed out the video cameras that we were taping these police with. And that's when they backed down. But the occurrence numbers that they gave us turned out to be, be non-existent. So that's the kind of crap that I've had to take. I had the biker gangs break into here and threaten to cut my head off, but I enjoy telling in election speeches that through all this process to legalize cannabis, that the police have always been much, much more brutal. Um, do, do you have any final thoughts, and, and where can people find you online and, uh, and in social media? Just a simple Google search of shavlock.com. By the way, Alex, there's another point I would just like to take 30 seconds and explain you. Sure. Explain to you because when my life, when my wife sat on the floor uh, crying, September the 4th, 2008, when we realized, this is just to give you some background. I was labeled an anti-Semite and, re- and removed, and something took over our phones and our internet, and our two laptops started to flash the words "quit" and started to type by themselves, and then they burned themselves out. I'm a bailiff. I did a internet uh, trace on a friend's computer and found out that the attacker only had two friends and one of them was the prime minister of canada who 
who do you call when you got the prime minister of the country attacking you? So when we determined all of these things, uh, you know, they've done other things. Like at that time, if you would have Googled my name, which is, if, uh, again, getting back to it, if people just Google Shavluk, which is S-H-A-V-L-U-K. But anyway, uh, there was 245,000 links on Google to my name. And it turned out the Green Party had somebody who worked at Google. But if you check it right now, it's been going down every day since that time. And right now, it's even under 4,000. Uh, two years ago, it was 70,000. Right now, it's down to 3,900. Yet if you just Google my wife's name, Marie Shavluck, there's 15,000. And if you look, 90% of them are about John Shavluck, so you know... There's fraud involved because I don't know how John Shavlik can only have 3,900 if his wife has 15,000 and 90 percent of them are about John Shavlik. But see, I'm—I used to be a Revenue Canada department head. I uh, do, did a lot of auditing and collections and things like that. I know what I'm doing as far as tracing things and skip tracing. That's how I've been able to determine these things and to prove that Google was fraudling my name. Just Google anything else, Shavlik, and you'll see many, many times that, and they all refer to me, because as I said, uh, if it's Shavluck, it's connected to me, because that name was given to us by border agents. Wow. Well, um, it's been very, very interesting talking to you, and uh, John, thank you again for stopping by the program. Well, thank you, Alex. I'm sorry I didn't get into the fact that native bands, don't, 80% of them don't even have fresh drinking water. And they're being abused by their own leadership with the system that we have in place. I've written extensively on how we can solve that, but nobody has the guts to take the issue on themselves. But we're working on it. And thank you. If you missed any part of the episode, podcasts are at iTunes. Search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. My guests tonight were Peter Christ, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Rick and David of Project Yano, and John Shavlik, who you just heard. And uh, the website is freethoughtmedia.org. Listen to KKSM and this podcast throughout the week on LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network, your best source for liberty-based talk shows. And these two songs, since we were on the subject of native peoples and, and decimation, this first song is by Testament. It's called Trail of Tears. And... Uh, certainly connotates the name and then after that indians by anthrax here on kksm the radio revolution and lrn.fm the liberty radio network tune in next week guys i got ken cole rated dispensary operator here in san diego and tribute to chuck schuldiner for his birthday late guitarist of death and control denied one of my heroes Alright guys, thank you again. Tune next week.
You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside.